The livable care pathway ended this day and the very next, next day it continued but with a new name, end of life care. It's not a healthcare system at all. It's a system there to make you sick, to keep you sick, keep you sick treat you, kill you, dispose of you and have you pay for it all the way along. She would tell me all about all these big orgies that went on around London that she would go to with lawyers and judges and cops and everything. They just changed the police and borders bill. It's even easier to traffic children now in the UK. We later found out at court that all those cops, that was their order, was to get me. He said, I saw my neighbours, my friends, my colleagues, my students, killing my neighbours, my friends, my colleagues, my students. And that's what we're seeing. Information covered up, censorship, corruption, the mainstream media have proven itself to be untrustworthy. I'm here to give a platform for debate, for truth, for open discussion. I'm introducing you to my podcast, Silenced with Tommy Robinson. Who exactly is Tommy Robinson or Stephen Gatsby-Lane? The problem is with Islamic radio. English far-right Islamophobic activists. Since then, there's been organised protests across the country in London, Manchester, Leeds. People in their thousands are marching for There is no such thing in this country as a Muslim... Free Tommy Robinson! Kate Shemirani is a British anti-vaccine activist and former nurse who lost her licence to practice in 2020 for misconduct. She has been labelled a conspiracy theorist by multiple media outlets for her opinions on COVID-19, vaccinations and 5G technology. Kate describes herself as a natural nurse in a toxic world and promotes alternative medicine and treatment away from the standardised methods of the National Health Service. She was suspended by the Nurse and the Midwifery Council in July 2020 in response to complaints that she was spreading conspiracy theories and misinformation about COVID-19 and vaccines, all of which she has been proven correct about. A prominent figure in anti-lockdown marches, Kate was seen as a beacon for leading the charge against draconian measures in place by the UK's government. Thank you for joining me for my latest edition of Silence, my podcast. I have a guest with me today who's caused controversy. She's been all over the news. She's loved, hated, many different labels, also almost as many as me. The moment I knew I wanted to meet her was when the Daily Mail labelled her as Britain's most dangerous woman. So I need to meet her. It's really nice to be here. Kate Shemarani. 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 There you go. Uh, nobody one. gets it right, which is quite, it's quite entertaining. And of course, it's, it's not my birth name, but I've hung on to it. Why bother changing it? What's in a name? Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start to just hear... People know you. You're known. You're, you're known online. And they think they know me. Yeah, they <laughs> think they know you. Like they, think they, they think they know who you are. They think they know your story. That's why I want to hear your story. I want us to hear from growing up. I want to hear all of it. But at what point do you think you become... At which point did you know your life had changed? Because your life must have changed. Everything that's happened in <clears> life has <throat> totally changed. At which point did you think this is? February 12th, 2012, when I was diagnosed with a, an aggressive and deadly cancer. Okay. That's the day my life changed completely. What cancer was you diagnosed with? It was lobular invasive grade three breast cancer with a high pleomorphic presentation. Okay. So three peer-reviewed independent studies said 20% survival at two years, zero at five, if... 20% survival chance with two years to live? 
20, yep, and yeah. zero at five years. So I would be dead be... within five years. They didn't tell me that. That was three studies I had to find. If I did everything on the menu, surgery, chemo, radio, tamoxifen, Solidex. I read those studies after I'd had surgery. So I had surgery, double mastectomy and a reconstruction. And at the London Clinic. You had a double mastectomy, so you had Double mastectomy and an immediate, no, I need one. But I thought, what's the point of having one breast? What do you do? Go around the corner, hello, I've just got one breast. I just thought, symmetry. Okay. So I had a double mastectomy and a reconstruction immediate at the London Clinic. Yeah. Three weeks after diagnosis. And I took two books into the hospital with me because my ex-husband, of course, was um, Dr. Shemarani, very gifted man. And, you know, it had already gone the Twin Towers. You know, we knew we were all on board with all of it anyway. When you say that, what sort of doctor was he? He was a doctor. He is a doctor of computer science. Okay. And, um, and he'd done chemical engineering, so he was like twin towers, no aircraft. And I'd worked for BA, and I knew an aircraft couldn't do that either. So I'd already read, you know, quite a few of his books. So I took two books into the hospital with me, a China study and Dr. Max Gerson, um, results of 50 cases. And I began to read them, and I was due to stay in the hospital for seven days with five drains. And on that day that I opened those books, day two, I left and went home. Explain that. Why? Why? Because I knew I'd just made a massive mistake. I'd just removed the symptom. And I now knew that cancer was... Um, it's a deficiency of vitamins, minerals and enzymes. It's toxicity of the liver and the entire circulation. And it's the body can no longer generate an immune response. It's... It's a metabolic disorder of the body. So it doesn't matter whether you cut your breasts off. What do we see all the time? We see people who've had body parts cut off and it comes back elsewhere. My mother has been saying she, she had, she's had it and it's gone different places. Because it doesn't go different places. It grows at a point of weakness. So I knew then, at that point, I wanted to know why did I have cancer? Yeah. And I went and I read and read and I'm still reading. Every day I learn something new. So I'd, I'd worked as a nurse, I'd had childhood vaccines, nursing vaccines, I'd worked for British Airways for 10 years on long haul, then back into nursing, I'd had so many vaccines. And it just, once, once you see once you see it, you can't unsee it. So what you're saying is this, this moment here was your awakening to questioning, questioning the hospitals, questioning pharmaceutical companies, questioning... Oh, I didn't need to question. They, you don't need to question any of it. At that point, it's like someone pulls the mask off you see it, you see the lie that it's an inversion. Okay. It's not a healthcare system at all. It's a system there to make you sick. To keep you sick. Keep you sick, treat you, kill you, dispose of you, and have you pay for it all the way along. And profit. Well, that your body's the commodity. So you leave the hospital, you leave the hospital with, after being in what, a day? Two days, with and five drains. Um, within the following week- What does week, your husband say when you're doing that? Uh, he supported me. He'd found the Gerson therapy. He was fantastic. He found everything. Explain what, can you explain what the Gerson therapy is? 13 juices a day, fat-free, salt-free, sugar-free, vegan diet for the first six weeks. Then you're allowed to... So this is, this is a therapy that if you've been diagnosed years. with cancer, if you do this for two years, this is something that um, people would say would help. help. And, and masses of studies. It wasn't quackery. It was masses of studies. What's it called again? The Gerson therapy. Okay, so what is it? Just go. Th 13 juices, yeah. fresh juices. Don't forget, I had four kids, yeah. young kids. So I had to drive 90 miles a day to get them to school. And I had to make 13 fresh juices. I ate ounces, five coffee enemas a day. That's a litre of coffee, rectally, for detoxing the liver. I took... Coffee enema? Yeah. What's coffee enema? 
it's coffee that's brewed specifically for so many minutes and then it's it's left cool and you 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 put infuse it rectally people laugh at me but when you say rectally who's having the less laugh you, you, <laughs> you put, put it up it, your ass yeah and you lie on your right side, not on your left. They were in the murk. Well, every day? Yeah. So every morning you... I, I know, I did five a day. You've done so five times a day? I did five a day, a day for, two, for two years, then four a day, three a day, and I still do one a day now, every day. That's why I needed a kettle. <laughs> oh, so, but this morning you put Dee's going to have to... This morning you put coffee up your Yeah, mom. I did. Yeah? So um, I, I wouldn't either. drink coffee, but I would... So... You were, so what, what's, what's the said benefit? What's, what's meant it's, to be the said benefit of putting coffee in your, causes, in your anus? It's the, it's the glutathione transferase. It's absorbed into the hemorrhoidal vein. It causes the liver to release all the bile. Your liver is a site form and all of your blood in your body goes through your liver every three minutes. It's there to detox the body. Cancer, the liver is to cancer as, as the heart is to vascular disease. So... What happens is all your blood's going through your liver and it's going to start cleaning it. That's what happens. And the juices as well change the charge at, at, the, at the cellular membrane and you start offloading toxins and, you, and parasites. And it was incredible. I, I lost 36 pounds in weight in six weeks, eating more food than I'd ever eaten. But when you say eating, was you eating or just juicing? No, no, I was eating breakfast. Oh, so you can juice, breakfast, juice lunch as well, and dinner. so you still eat? Oatmeal for breakfast with fruit on. I was having uh, potatoes, a cooked vegetable, a salad, Hippocrates soup for lunch and the same for dinner. And what was your diet like, like before this? What was um, life like before this? What was my health like? Yeah, what was your health like? yeah. So before it, my eyesight was failing. I was getting more and more long-sighted. Plantar fasciitis, that's when I got out of bed, my feet hurt. Arthritis, lots of extra heartbeats. Uh, I had psoriasis on my scalp. I'd had an ovarian cyst, which is a classic sign um, of things to come. And I suffered terribly from migraines my entire adult life from my early 20s. And um, I started the therapy and within six weeks I could read without glasses for the first time in a decade. Every other symptom disappeared. And I've never had a migraine in uh, that whole 12 years. Never had a migraine since. Wow. And what was interesting for me was that the, I, because of my medical background, I then started to teach myself more in-depth biochemistry, hematology. I started to look into pathology, everything, and start to read the science. So we, so we understand, I want to go back into all this, but what, what is your medical background? So I'm a, a nurse of 37 years, but, um, and I'm going to insult every nurse now, and I don't care if you're offended, it means that you know I'm telling the truth, so, you know, deal with it. Um, I didn't learn how to, to heal a body and truly nurse a patient until I had cancer. So what we were taught in nursing school was just how to manage the, the, the product of the, the system. That's what we were doing. We were, we were literally pharma pimps. We were just doling out the drugs and doing you know, dressings on hideous wounds that had been created because of the system. Um, so, so you didn't you didn't have chemotherapy? No, I refused. You it. refused it all. Yeah, but you was you was advised by the hospital to have my I was advised to have chemotherapy, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, tamoxifen, Zolodex, and then my brother-in-law, 
who is one of Iran's top urologists, partners the hospital in Tehran, a very respected man. His exact words to my ex-husband was, make her do it, drag her to the this hospital, get all her nodes out, both arms, make her have it, she's going to be dead in 18 months. I was just about to say, what was everyone's reaction? People Horrified. Well, I didn't tell anybody. I never told, I only told about six people that I had cancer. How I don't, I don't go telling you? people, oh, I've got a urine infection, oh, I've got thrush. Why do we have to go out and say to the world, I've got cancer? It's because it's an industry. It's so that we go, look, I'm fighting a brave battle. Um, it's because it's an industry. It's to make us all go out once a year wearing a pink wig and go running for race for life and raise more money for these crooks. Or what about the Macmillan nurses? Come round and have a tea and coffee morning and cake and raise money for cancer. The three things that are going to give you cancer. <laughs> So if they're offended, How I don't How old were your children this time? Uh, my oldest was in the first year of secondary school. My twins were coming to the end of their second to last year of primary and then my youngest. So, so they would be nine, let me think, nine, eleven and thirteen or just under that. And how easy was that to see, as, a, as a mother? How easy was that decision? I know, I know you're fully aware of where you stand now and your beliefs and you've been proven right in a lot of things, we'll get to them. But on that cancer issue at that time, because you mustn't have known it's going to work. Well, so you must have. Eight, uh, you must have been. You must be sat there as a mum. You, you potentially being told you're going to die, and the hospital are telling you chemotherapy and radiotherapy will help you. And then you've. Did, did you have doubts? Did you? No. No. So, so, in a nutshell. <laughs> I was diagnosed, 18 months before I was diagnosed, my husband was getting all these books coming through. We listened to Alex Jones all the time. He said, look at this Go DVD. On, yeah, he said, look at this DVD. He said, um, it's got all these cures for cancer. And I sat and watched it, bicarb, B17. Vitamin B17, G. Edward Griffin. I've just been flown to America by him. What's the squidgy black stuff? Because Black cells. So, so my, my mum got diagnosed with cancer and I made a video saying my mum's got diagnosed with cancer and he Muslim, doctor from Canada reached out to me and gave me and went down the path you're now going that you've gone down mm. went down the path and said there's a cure for all of this there is well, I can't say well you that. can't say cure you go to jail yeah, in the UK yeah, yeah, he it's said 1939 that. cancer right? there's black salve there's he said there's, there's so a doctor, there's, he went through these foods there's so many things three. and they've always been there and so um, I watched this video and then I was diagnosed and I remember it was a Wednesday and I'd, the cat kept I'd got these boob implants because I was this Barbie doll middle class. What's your, what's your cat's name? Wife. <laughs> <laughs> I had 12 cats at the time. I didn't have that one. Um, so these, um, I had these boob implants and I'd, I'd had to have one replaced and I bled. And the cat kept wanting to get in the door, wanting to come in. And the cat kept pouring my breast till in the end, I'd got all cat scratches and it was sore and it was rubbing it. I found this gritty area. I went in and I had a mammogram. Nobody should have a mammogram. What's a mammogram? Where they pass huge amounts of radiation through your breast. If you have a mammogram every year for 10 years, 33% in increase in getting cancer because of the iatrogenic, the disease-causing effects. Yet they still do them. My mammogram was negative. So I then had an ultrasound immediately after and then straight and I said, well, let's just do a biopsy. We did the biopsy there and then on the Wednesday. Going to the hairdressers on the Friday, and I got the phone call. That could you come in and see us? I went no, because it's clearly something sinister that you're ringing me. So tell me now over the phone, because it was it was private. And he said it's breast cancer, it's the worst kind. And so a couple of days later, I went for an MRI. I made my mind up there and then. I wasn't going to tell my kids. They don't need to know. Why do they need to know? Because 
it's that whole industry again. It's that fear thing. We've got to keep the fear going so that everybody accepts that the person in the white coat is going to give us chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And if we accept all that, then we get to carry on our lives. So no, I wasn't going to tell them. I only told a small group of people. And in that moment as well, a lot of my friends left because of fear. There's, there is a certain amount of fear around. And I went home. Uh, no, I went to see the consultant first. And then I went out an MRI. And then I remember going to see, uh, you know, three weeks in, I'm having the surgery. And then I went to see this oncologist. And I, by this time, I'd lost a lot of weight. I was already doing the Gerson therapy. My wounds were breaking down. It looked like the implants were going to fall out. As soon as I started juicing, everything dried up. And I've virtually got no scars. And, I, and all the nurses were amazed. The consultant just recently said to me, you've done so well. And I said, what, to be alive? And he went, yes. So, you know, they were all watching and the consultant backed me. He supported what I did. Booper wouldn't give me a penny. The private consultant. Yeah, all the, he, he did all my bloods and, and, you know, looked after my implants. But what was interesting was, you know, I, I went to see this oncologist and uh, he, he said, um, you're not going to do the tamoxifen? I went, no, I'm not doing any of it. I'm not doing any of it. And he went, oh, okay. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing the Gerson therapy. I'm doing vitamin B17. I'm doing Laetrile. Injections. So, well, that's, you're probably having B12. Oh, B12, sorry, yeah, B12. So, vitamin B17, because this is something okay, you yes, need to listen to on camera. It's four molecules. Yep. It's glucose, glucose, benzaldehyde, and cyanide. The benzaldehyde and cyanide are totally inert, they're inactive. When they come into contact with beta-glucosidase found in 3,000 times greater quantities in cancer cells, synergy occurs, they become far more powerful, they go into the cell, they destroy the cancer cell, they filter through the liver, they regulate blood pressure, they act as an analgesic, painkiller and an antiseptic. They're found in the seeds of the fruits of the trees. It tells us that in Genesis in the Bible. They're found in the apricot kernels. And that's why the Hunzas in the Himalayas live till they're over. Okay, that's why they all yeah, don't get cancer. Them. The Inuits, the true Inuits, they eat the caribou that grazes for thousands of miles. And the first thing they eat when they get that caribou, the reindeer, is they eat the stomach, which is full of the nitrilicides, the B17. It's so fantastic. Where, 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 would, where would you get B17 from? Uh, you can get them from a link from me, and you get ten percent okay, discount. Okay, where would you, um, back then? Twelve in well, two thousand twelve. I, I didn't take the kernels because the Gerson therapy you couldn't have fat. Okay. So I had the pure Laetrile, which is the active ingredient. And I was recently in America, holding the book of the very man that eventually, you know, was to lead to saving my life, and he'd invited me to speak. Oh, the bloke who's so the bloke. G. Who's Edward my... Griffin, okay. A World Without Cancer, and I and his. And doc... This is where you started, two thousand twelve. Yes. And, and the doctor, the doctor who asked him to write the book, his son was listening to me speak. And oh, that's wow. now who I'm now doing some work with. We're going to get my logo on the, on the, uh, the tablets, on the kernels, and get them into the UK. So this is full circle for me. This is where I know I was exactly where I needed to be. I was supposed to get cancer because it changed my life. Yeah, I was expecting, I wasn't expecting that kind of cancer to be a, the answer of what, what, what was the moment when you knew your life changed. I was expecting it to be something to do with COVID, something to do with... No, so no, you, it was you, this is why when people was, you call me a shill, it was a wake you, you, very can, early. you can look on YouTube, there's lots of videos and interviews from me from long ago. Yeah, and... Uh, you when know, you I say people call you a shill, what does that mean to you? 
What do you take? It just means that they're stupid. What do they? What? what, what, what well, are they I saying? think I think what has been said about me is. Um, Tommy oh, Robinstein, that's what they call me. Yeah. Tommy oh, I, I heard you were you were living in Israel and <laughs> you were yeah. yes. Um, well, they say that I um, I work for the government. That I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I live in a big mansion. Um, can we clarify that? So, yeah. Uh, so can we clarify I, you, you born born for silver spoon? So I, you speak very, you speak the Queen's English very well. Um, I, I think I learned early on that um, if you want to get listened to, sometimes you have to play their game. You have to dress if you if you pitch up and, and no disrespect. Which to mean when I started the EDL talking the way I talk and walking the way I walk. Yeah, but, but times <laughs> have changed. But if you pitch up, I learned. I watched doctors. Um, if you pitch up wearing a shell suit and sitting there all uncomfortable and going, "Tell me what to do, doc," they will tell you what to do. If you pitch up dressed properly and you've researched it and you're speaking their language, you're using the words that they use because they don't be tell you what to do. You pay for them, they're working for you. And so you walk in, you own it. You walk in authority, the Lord gave us that authority. So sometimes you have to kind of play your ga their game until, I suppose, I went to Bali as a, as a child as well. And well I, was you born with a silver spoon? No, I was born was in you? a council house. My parents were 16, pregnant, married, uh, three children. My dad's a postman, he was a postman, he's died now. Um, so my mum had three children by the time she was 21. I was the third. Um, she, they had nothing, nothing. Um, and my mum was very, very smart, very intelligent woman. And we just, you know... Mum's still alive? Yeah, she lives in Australia. She's nearly 80. Okay. And hard-working North Midlands woman, retired in her 50s. She's remarried. But, you know, she instilled in us, she taught us to sew, she taught us to knit, she taught us to crochet, she taught us to decorate, she taught us to stand on our own two feet and never rely on anyone. My dad got done for GBH, I mean, we were meant to go to Australia, we couldn't, because he got done for that. So, your whole family was due to move to Australia? Yeah. And then dad got done for a violent... So, no, we were, my dad had a, we, well, I was very little, and his parents had already gone to Australia, and he's got lots and lots of brothers from all different dads. Okay. And we don't we don't really know my dad's real name or da you know who his father was, and my mother's got lots of siblings and there's lots of mothers and fathers in there, so a family tree was right out the window. Um, the you know, just my whole family's not what people think. Um, you know, during why do you war, think people think that? Because the way you talk and because how you look. I think I think. So you're putting into a bracket. No, I, I think. I think it would be very irritating if I say this to some people, but again, you know, it's a big ugly world out there and I don't care if it's offensive to you because if it's offensive to you, it's because it's, it's hitting a nerve. People do not want to see somebody slim, fairly nice looking, who's fairly educated and might have more than them. It pisses them off. It does, because it does two things. It will either make them go, I want to be better, I want to better myself, which is what I was like when I used to go to the ballet school and see all these other kids that were very different to us. Um, and I used to think, I want that, I want to do that. Or, or they just want to pull it down because it makes them feel yeah. better because it keeps everybody at their level. That's not my issue. So, you know, I think a lot of it is that. And wh what were they doing? What were they doing when they were killing the elderly? Sat on their asses as keyboard warriors, afraid to put their heads up. Well, we've gone past that point. Yeah, you certainly have. <laughs> yeah. Well, so... Well, you, are, you are you close with your sisters? Yeah, my sister's... Are you still been close over, Yeah, okay. she, my sister's just been over from Australia. My mm. other sister, 
Um, my nephew is in the intelligence corps of the army. I think he's just gone into... In Australia? No, no, oh, in here. the UK. Um, I don't know what he was in some kind of... I don't know what he's gone into now. The police or something, he's done some training. But, of course, they were horrified, what I did. And, you know, he was talking about... They don't know anything about me. I've not seen them for years. And, um, uh, you know, as I, I assume they're all jab-loving, um, Covid-loving, whatever. Um, Mask-wearing. Probably. And, you know, if he's in the military, that kind of says it was... I've probably offended him now, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> Whatever, um, you know, who cares? So some of your family did this cause. We'll get on to when it actually blew up, because obviously you've gone through, so you've gone through your cancer treatment, and let's get back to that. You've, you've gone on your own, you've ignored the hospitals, your health has got better, you've got stronger, and you've, you are in remission, you... We don't do remission. No, because what is remission? Um, my, I, every day, I keep, try to keep myself healthy. Because they're only your cells. Did you totally clean? Did you totally clean? Well, uh, there was one with, you know, I've heard, I've heard these people going, oh, she's alive because she had the surgery. Well, if that's the case, why were they trying to get me to have chemo, radio, tamoxifen and zonodex? So, you know, shut up. Um, it's just ridiculous. And I've seen friends die. My own father's died. Who've, I've seen lots of people die who've had the surgery, who've had lesser cancer than me. Do you, t do you tell them when your father, if you mind if I ask, did your father get cancer? He did. He got... Did you... He got... Did you tell him not to receive treatment? Um, I, it's not for me to say that, but what I did do, I put to him what he could do. But he... Uh, I think he smoked from me, he was about 12, and, and ate loads of sugar. And um, he got bladder cancer, which is very common in smokers. Then he had surgery, then it went to his kidney, and then it went to his lungs. He went into hospital because one morning he woke up and he was paralysed with a tumour on his spine and he died the next day. I mean, I always wonder now, <laughs> did he die? Or was he helped along with a nice syringe? I will never know. And, that's, and you, you say that because that's because now there's a mass... Well, it's always happened. It's always happened, but a lot of people are aware now that during COVID, they encouraged the level of drugs to Well, help. there was... 9.9 million milligrams of midazolam was ordered by Matt Hancock, supplied by a court Healthcare Limited. And what's midazolam? So midazolam is used in end-of-life care, but it's also used in anaesthesia, if you're having an operation. It's also was used on death row in America, but they don't like it because it's akin to waterboarding. So <laughs> Matt terrible. Hancock, so let me get that clear, yeah? And let's get the dates a bit clear. Is this, this is at the start of COVID. Yeah, so we saw, you saw Jonathan Van Tam was yeah. there, but there was, so it was in the background. So you saw, uh, it was all on the mainstream media, Matt Hancock being interviewed by a GP who's now in politics. And they asked him what they needed for a good death, syringe drivers and midazolam, and he admitted they had enough. So that was 9.9 .9 million milligrams. And it would, as I understand it, that would take about two years to be used up generally. But that was used within nine months. And that, if you go on... So that, and, and what would their excuse for that be? It would be, if you're in that much pain, we give you this as a pain. But there was no pain. Is that, is that what they say that drug's used for? Well, that drug is used in, in anaesthesia to, uh, when, you, when you're put to sleep. But it's a very, very serious drug. You can't use very much. And for when, when you think most of the people that died were over 60, 
the amount that they should be given in any 24-hour period of midazolam is no more than 3 milligrams. How much will they 0.5 to 3 milligrams. Well, m many of them were given 17 milligrams. And they were given morphine with it, which makes it much more powerful. And they didn't have, if you go onto EMC and the recommendations, which all nurses and doctors should look at, when you give that drug, you're supposed to monitor that patient, monitor their respirations, because it's going to depress their respirations. They put masks on. Well, it, it paralyzes your diaphragm. So what happened is those patients were given that drug. Now, if I said to you, in three seconds, you're going to stop breathing. And if I counted down, three, two, one, what would you do? You'd go, <gasps> they didn't get told that. They didn't get told when they were injecting that in, you're not going to breathe. They just couldn't breathe. It paralyzes the diaphragm. They suffocated. It's horrific. And that's how they then died. And so what, so say, say someone's sitting here watching this and they've had an elderly relative who's eight years old, they're in hospital, they, had, they were diagnosed with COVID and they were given this drug. What would you say the reason was? Well, I, I think it would be better and more pertinent if I gave you actual scenarios. Please. So I spoke to a professional, now retired footballer, and his father, I, well, I don't think, he, I, I haven't got permission to, to give his name. Okay, that's fine. But his father went into hospital. Yes. And he was ill, and the relatives were sitting, and the nurse came in and said, are you in any pain? And he said, no, no, not at all. So there's a couple of things there. First of all, one, one could hypothesize that his brain was being adequately perfused with oxygen because not only did he understand the question, he was able to answer it and articulate back. And the nurse went out and she came in with three things on a tray and injected it. And then the man slumped to the side within 10 minutes, just slumped to the side. The son was asked to go out and spoke to the doctor, and the doctor said, you do understand he's dying. He said, what are you talking about, he's dying? 20 minutes later, he was dead. He asked what was in those syringes, and he was told a, a, a flush, which would be saline, midazolam and morphine. He wasn't in pain, he said he wasn't in pain. No. So why would they, so, okay, so say for that footballer, that, why would they do that? Well, there were protocols that came out during COVID uh, NG159, NG191, NG163, I might not have those in the right order, 27.7. And those protocols come down from NICE and they tell the doctors what to do in the event of a patient who is suffering from this. And end of life. Now, as I understand Because doctors can't use that, right? They have to follow the protocols, yeah? They, they do, but they are also, at the end of this protocol, it clearly states that they are also to use their own judgment. Okay. So if, if one were to look at a greater view to understand this, we have the, um, the Prevention of Euthanasia in this country bill. And that was, was from 2000, April 2000, Anne Winterton was pivotal in that bill. The prevention so, of Euthanasia is so to prevent it's, it's people illegal. being able, it's illegal to be able to kill yourself. It's illegal, and you would need consent if it were legal. You would need consent. So these guidelines were written and 11 doctors wouldn't sign off on it because they knew it was deadly. So one doctor, I believe his name is Rob George, he signed off on it. And He signed off on these protocols? Yes. He's a, um, and what were the protocols specifically? Um, they What's... were to give a starting dose of 2.5 milligrams of midazolam. Which is the highest end. 
when you think it's well, only three milligrams in any 24-hour period. First of all, it was patients over 65, then it dropped to patients over 60, and with morphine. And one has to remember that these patients that are over 60 or 65 would have other things wrong with them. They might be on lots of other drugs. They, were, they went into the hospital and they, were, they had their food, water and essential medication removed. Let's say they were diabetic and you removed their insulin. What about if they were on digoxin to slow the heart rate down and you stopped that? What about if they were on lorazepam, which, and they've been on it for at least nine months, if you remove that, what's the, what's it, it's another one of these benzodiazepines. If you remove it instantly, the side effect is called inner chaos. The patient will just go completely agitated. So they removed the drugs. They gave them on morphine and midazolam. Mm. They didn't give them any hydration. But the other thing is, I've read another scenario, a gentleman, this is a, a, the, pro probably the worst. Yeah, um, <clears throat> actually, there's two that are bad. Um, this gentleman owned a nightclub and owned a bar. So he was a good businessman. At his autopsy, I've read the autopsy report, he had all 32 adult teeth. So one could state that he was in pretty good health. He was on no medication, slightly overweight. He went to the hospital because they were worried. He'd got four children who worked with him because he'd had this flu that he wasn't getting better. They said, Dad, go to the hospital, it might be COVID. He walked into the hospital and in his nursing notes, I've read them, a big pile, on this particular day, he'd had crunchy nut cornflakes and almond milk to eat. And he'd had lentil curry because he was vegetarian. I can tell you right now, if a patient is breathless, they cannot eat food like that. Because the diaphragm, the way they're breathing and using all their accessory muscles, their appetite goes. They don't want to eat big meals. And so they said he'd had all that food. Then he FaceTimed his wife. Now that tells you again, the brain has been adequately perfused with oxygen that he manages to dial his wife's number, call her and reiterate, the doctors want to put a tube down my throat um, and put me to sleep. So he's managed to relay that entire conversation. That's not a patient who's breathless, because when you're breathless and you're not getting oxygen to the brain, what do you get? You get confused. So they put a vent in him. 10 days later, that man's dead. Did he ever speak to his family again? No. Do you, can but I what, ask you? Just you, to say, I read the autopsy report. Did you read the autopsy report because you were in contact with that? Yes. Okay. And this is what his autopsy said, and I was horrified. He had pitting edema. There was so much fluid in his tissues that your hand would sink in when you press, and it stays in. That's pitting edema. He had sepsis. He had herpes everywhere. He had kidney failure. After 10 days. He had cirrhosis. He had, yeah, he was jaundiced. So I went through the drugs that he was on and I looked up all the side effects of each drug. I put all his symptoms down in one column and the time span and I put all the side effects of the drugs and they killed him. They gave him remdesivir and the carrying agent for remdesivir collects in the kidneys. Well, if you're hammering someone with loads of other drugs, then those kidneys aren't going to be getting rid of those drugs quick enough. So what's going to happen? You're going to get fluid in the lungs, fluid around the heart, fluid in the tissue. What are they going to call that fluid in the lungs? I saw it, COVID pneumonia. That's exactly what they did. They gave him three chemotherapy drugs. They killed that man. Why? Because 
That was their protocol. So, so you've they're got following these... the protocols which are handed yeah. down. So, so what, what you said, what, what, what you said, what we, what is, is that the protocols are coming in, which have the goal of killing people. Well. You know, I, 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 think, I think any doctor and nurse out there, and I'm more than happy to challenge one, they can sit in front of me. Mm. Um, that First of all, they do not have the right to take a life or to decide. It's illegal. It's illegal. They cannot decide whether someone lives or dies, but they are deciding. They're deciding end-of-life care. One doctor went down the ward behind a consultant who pointed at each patient like a scene from Schindler's List. End of life, end of life, end of life. So they were deciding who was going to die. Now I spoke to. You start them on there. I spoke clock. to a student. There's a student nurse, and I actually know her since she was little. She went to her first ward in 2020. Wanted to be a doctor, didn't get the grades. Went to be a nurse. It was a dream job. She goes into this ward that shouldn't have been end of life. It was. A, I'm not going to say what ward it is because it might lead to her. But it was a particular ward where the patients should mostly get better, or be managed and go home. End of life, she gets in there, the patients are in, in their rooms, lying in their own feces and urine. One of them had a pressure sore that was so big and deep, she could see the spine through the hole in this sacral area. Was this all during COVID? Yep. The, so this is during, during COVID the, when everyone's out of the hospitals. And no one can see what's going no one's on. No one what's going on, okay. And the patients were begging for water and she was instructed, do not give them a drink. You can't give them anything. And then the, the particular nurse in charge went like this to this student. She was in the room holding this patient's hand. She clicked her fingers and went like that. Now, I, I, I find that really odd. So I'm going to put my, you know, reputation on the line here. I person and if this nurse gets to watch this, and my videos do tend to go the around, she'll know. I know where she okay. works. I know the ward that this happened in. And I know the hospital. And they'll know if they're the nurses. I believe she did that so that that patient didn't hear her voice just in case any relative ever did come in. Because that's a very unusual thing to that's do. That's such a, um, it's such a, such a heartless, because uh, I, I think some people struggle to believe that there's nurses that are just this, uh, oh, that humans that are this heartless. They've always been nurses just, like that. Yeah. Well, you see it in undercover like recordings when you're there's, all, you, there's always been nurses like but, that. So this, this student nurse saw this so much and she saw patients that she was talking to one day, they were all right, the next day they were dead. I spoke to a care assistant, exactly the same thing happened. She was horrified at what was happening. Now, this student nurse has now got severe PTSD. She's left. Of course. And she's waking up screaming. She's having, she's having counselling because she's terrified that her parents are going to the hospital. You know... And is I, she scared I, to talk out about Well, I, I actually said Would to her, speak? I said, you know... Well, well, I'm quite worried for her and her mental health because I said, you've been complicit in murder, which you have. But that might not help her. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I've, I've said a lot more to her. She knows me. I've said, you know... She needs to be very careful. You know, you have to be, look, so if you, if you, you've if got to be got... very careful where you start speaking out because Chris, we can talk about Lucy Letby in a minute. <laughs> I, want, I want to get on to Lucy Letby. But that, for that nurse, it, was it beyond her powers? If she's witnessing She this, was a student. She's a student. When I was, when why I was... Why do you think people like this haven't, why do you think we haven't had nurses coming forward and talking openly? They're afraid. When I was 18 years old, I began my nurse training. 
and I did uh, geriatrics first, terrible word for the care of the elderly. And it was in this great big old psychiatric hospital and these like huts for where the elderly were. And it was like a nightingale ward, all the beds, and there was a day room at the end. And there was some of the night nurses when the patients, um, we, we did earlies and lates, but the night nurses, when the patients were noisy, they had dementia, um, they would put them in these boxing chairs, tip the chairs back, put their dressing gowns on back to front and tie them in across their arms with the cords and put them in the day room and shut the door. Well, that's restraint. And, you know, this, this case that's hitting the papers now about these nurses that have given too much medication to the patients to keep them quiet. The, let me tell you the only difference between that case and, and is, is they were stupid enough to text. Because that's, this is nothing new. Whenever you get any, any piece of society which is looking after those that are unable to look after themselves, you will always attract those who want that power. Cool. The police. You will look at their selection process, it's spot on. Don't ask questions. And, but what does it also attract? It attracts those you know, small, limp, dicked, terrible men that want to have that, and women, that want to have that authority over people and they abuse their position of power. Not all of them. There's some, I, I know some really good cops. They're leaving, the good ones are leaving. Uh, they, Actually, they, they have said to me it's horrific now yeah, they're because they're getting all these young cops coming through that are grasses. Yeah, I speak to, I speak to local police in the town and the, yeah, the, I, the good are, guys are leaving. Mine are good and, um, you know, I, I've got no beef with them at all. But what, that's, that's Sussex. We what about, like what about ventilators? Because well, people put on ventilators. Well, ventilators. When, whenever you put a patient on a ventilator, you're on a risk of killing the patient anyway. You've got a portal into their lungs. So there has to be... That, that, that balance, that you're taking that risk because, you know, you need to do that in order to save their life, to adequately perfuse the brain with oxygen. And was that protocol with COVID? Well, I, I don't know why they were putting... Because everyone was being put on hope. Well, the... no, a lot of them weren't even going to get a ventilator. Because they were No, there was plenty of ventilators. They okay. were told... I, I know that some disabled families, um, dis disabled children, their relatives were told, you're going to have to have a DNR on them because... What's a DNR? Do not resuscitate. Okay. Because, you know, they, we, we couldn't possibly resuscitate them. It would crush their chests or, you know, it would be terrible. You'd die a miserable death. That's what some people were told. And they were, they had these do not resuscitates put on them. I remember hearing about them. The do not and you have to have consent for that. So all these nurses out there and doctors that think they're above the law, they're not. The law remains. And if history teaches us one thing, eventually history will repeat. And when you signed those books for a controlled drug, which is morphine and midazolam, you signed the notes, you signed the controlled drug, you're signing your confession there. You, you, so if all this is looked up on in years and, we, and people realise that... They're looking there. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people were killed that they didn't need to be killed due to their... their how they dealt with it, you think people may face prosecution? Well, there's a case going on that right now, Gosport, and a doctor... In Gosport? Yeah. Was Where's Gosport? Near Portsmouth? Uh, which, <laughs> wherever it is, a lot of people were killed. Um, she, this doctor, um, was... 
she's under investigation for ending the lives of many, many elderly people. Okay. And eventually, she was allowed, whilst this first investigation was going on, to continue being a doctor. Then eventually, because of pressure, she retired. But she's still free. Now the investigation's been opened again. 35 years later. 35 years later. How many people were killed? I, well, I think there's something like 400. I might be wrong wow. on that. But, you know, even if it were four, yeah, yeah, yeah. even if it were one, no one has the right to remove the sanctity of life. And we, we have to stop judging as well in numbers. But that, that, we that have to judge that. as everybody is somebody's mother, father, daughter, aunt. We have to look at one life. Removing the sanctuary of life looks like it's um, a direction they want to take us in anyway, no? Well, I think it's always... I, I don't know... You know, all at the moment, the mask is off. We're all seeing it. The Liverpool Care Pathway, uh, I think it was June rain, it was to be got rid of. Phased out. I mean, isn't that nice? She decided to phase it out. Never mind the poor buggers that were in the phase out period. But, to phase uh, out what? To phase out the Liverpool Care Pathway, which what was, was the Liverpool Care Pathway? Removing food, water, and essential medication okay. and, and putting them on end of life care drugs. Okay. I've interviewed many nurses, and actually, one's going to come on the radio and say it outright she, she's no longer, she left nursing because of what she saw. The Liverpool Care Pathway ended this day, and the very next, next day, it continued, but with a new name, End of Life Care. Okay. The exact same. It's, it's, it's always been there. And so, you know, I, I've heard, uh, I've got lots of nurses that whistleblow to me, and, and, I, and I like the fact that, you know, I've, one of them said, I want to leave, I can't stand it. I went, no, you need to carry on and keep telling me. Get the information. And, um, you know, one of the nurses had gone on a course, a palliative care course, and then another course. And so she'd started questioning the other nurses. And, and they didn't care. They were like, I oh, know, but it's kinder. You know, they're, they're not suffering. You, you it's don't not your have... It's not your mum. Well, you, well, also, why are we giving them benzodiazepines and opioids, which takes away all their clarity, depresses their respirations, kills them, when we could give them huge doses of rectal uh, and oral cannabis oil, high THC, they'd have no pain and they'd be completely lucid until they... Is that a rhetorical question as to why? Or is it because Big Pharma won't make any money off that? Well, we know why, but, yeah, <laughs> but that's what it does. And, you know, when you're going to die, how do we know someone's dying? Eventually, they, they want to just lie down. They will stop eating and drinking eventually. It's the opioids to make them do anyway. Pardon? Which the opioids would make them do anyway. Yeah, and then eventually the blood begins to retreat, their hands and feet go cold to the main organs, and then they stop swallowing, and you hear what's called the death rattle. And it's just as they exhale with the saliva in the back of the throat. In those end-of-life care packs, they've even put hyacinth, which is the drug that dries the secretions up in the throat. So they're relatives. You can ring up the line. You can ring up the golden line, it's called, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. Ding, ding, hello, is that the, is, is that the golden line? You know, my husband's not very well. Um, I will get the pack out to you and you can give it. Oh, it's, it's not going to kill him, is it? You're not going to kill him, are you? No, dear, you are. Um, will you give those drugs? These patients are being killed by their own relatives and they don't realise. The relatives don't realise. And they put, they put, you know, the paramedics again, again, have got the Again, right. what do you think the motive is behind the... Whether it be the government, whether it be Big Pharma, whoever it is that's ending the life of these elderly people, older people, people with different problems, why are they doing it? Is, well, it, is well, it financial? Well, is, it to prevent, is it because they're going to cost the system? Is it? Well, one can look at the 2011 Palliative Care Funding Review. I can, I can send it to you for this podcast, actually. You can cool. put it up. Cool. I've got it on my phone. 
The Palliative Care Funding Review of 2011, the Lansley Report, Andrew Lansley, it's always these same names, all of these same people. Who is Andrew Lansley? Uh, well, he's the one who wrote the report, but all these, you'll find that all of these same names, Jeremy Hunt, Lansley, you know, all, all their links to University College London and okay. are they eugenicists? I would possibly say yes, that's just my personal opinion. Um, so in this, this review on page 64, and everyone can go and look this up, page 64, up. scan down, and you will see a box, and it goes from 2011 to 2031, and it goes through age demographics, 18 going down to 65 plus. And the amount of deaths for 2011, by the time you get to 2031, the deaths are skyrocketing. Now, if you're going into all the care homes, which they just have, to do shingle shot, COVID shot, pneumonia shot and flu shot, one could be, you know, forgiven in thinking that they're trying to save our elderly by giving them all these booster shots. So why is the death rate going up? Now, above that box... This is a, this is a death rate going up since 2011, but it's predicted to continue to rise. To rise and rise and rise. rise. But not in the 20, the 18 to 25, because that's your working class. Above that box... Because they, they want them working. They want them working because they're going to be paying tax. Now, if yeah. you go above that box, it states very clearly that they're going to be broadening palliative care. That means putting more people on it and incentivising. That's cash for corpses. So that's a planned tariff incentivised euthanasia point system. So every single hospital, in order to to get its, its money to fix through the electrics, they, they have to have so many people on end-of-life care a year. That's so, contractual. So yeah, and if they go all... below it, they get nothing. If they go above it, they so get if more. Not, if not enough people die, it will financially impact. Well, they, do to, they won't let not enough people die. They make sure. So it is a business. Yep. So a business that needs Hospitals' death. success is judged on how many people they have on end-of-life care. Not how many people they save. It's how many people are on end-of-life care. So what in, in 2020, I believe it was 1,642.5 patients had to be euthanised every day in England. Well, 1, not euthanised. I think it's 1,642.5 minimum every day in England and Wales. Now it's 2,066. And John Ellershaw and Marie Curie have just announced recently that they're going to be increasing that amount again. So you, it's 750,000 a year now, and it's going to be going up again. So you're heading for a million. And people then say, oh, I don't believe that because the population's going up. Well, yes, it is going up because if you go and look at the, the office... Of, well, the Office of National Statistics is telling you how many are dying of all causes. I mean, in, in February, I think it was over 20,000. It would normally be six to 8,000. Why is our population going up? Because they're including all the non-EU immigrants in the figures. They're literally doing population replacement by getting rid of the elderly. We're completely broke as a country. So by culling the elderly, I think it's something, it's less than a cow or a pig we're worth. We worked it out. I think it's, we're, we're worth. So it actually states in that palliative care funding review. Yeah. And I think you're worth, it's 400 and... 478 quid I think we're worth but you add that up for the amount of elderly then that are going through that are dying so when all the elderly were in the hospital in 2020 
90,000 of them were shipped out of the hospitals into care homes. Which there was a big massive stink about at the time. Yeah, because some of them were alleged to have had COVID, but the care homes had to take them. them. Yep, they had to take them or they would have, never have, got, never have got any, care, any more people in. Okay. And those people were shipped into the care homes and they came with a one-off payment, which we can't find, and £3,300 extra from the government given to the care home on top of their care home fee. So all of these 90,000 were coming out into the care homes. Those two care, 95% of those care homes are owned by two companies, Barchester and HC1. I think Barchester is, um, I think HC1 is a rich Arab billionaire owns it. Their accounts, those two companies are in the Cayman Islands. What a surprise. And they're now buying up all the other care homes. You've got a very lucrative business going on. So these patients, and then there will be patients that went into hospital. Maybe their relatives said, I want to take my dad home and look after him. But they would put a deprivation of liberty order on them. You can't take your loved one home. He can't look after himself. We're going to put him into a nursing home. So do you see the consultant, the social care, they get to decide which care home you're going into. Jeremy Hunt then said they couldn't tax the rich, but they could tax the elderly. So they then start to draw down on the elderly's assets. Do you see what happens? So the elderly have paid their pension their entire lives, but they're going to die before collecting it, and they're going to lose all their assets as well. To pay for their care? Yes, down to the last 100k. And once you're dead, you keep on paying for that room, that bed, until there's another body in it. No so, way. yeah. So, yeah, so the elder, so, so what's happening with the elderly is so, so let, let's just you're still paying for that bed till the next body's in it. So, so what's happening is, you know, relatives are getting then getting a bill from the care home for a massive, no, more than three grand. Can I, can I understand then, if it wasn't for the elderly being cold, if it wasn't for the people being killed, would there have been any figures during this so-called pandemic to support the fact that there was a... Well, those figures have always been there because this Lansley report goes back to 2011. Okay. So they already had targets, okay. and it was it was 549,000, I think, in two as we then came up to 2020. Then it was yeah, then it was 599,000 in 2020. Then it jumped to 600 and something thousand. Mm. So those figures have always been there, uh, and so now you've got. You know, over 100k per capita. You've got our, our debt is 300%, I believe, probably higher than greater than our spending. So how are you going to get that? Well, what's a really good way is to get rid of everybody that's a, a, a possible drain. And look what they're doing as well to the youth all over the Western world. They are brainwashing them into not seeing the elders as someone that you learn from, a very valuable piece of your community. They're seeing them as a drain, as a dredge. Did you see this? this, this did you see the stats from the Canadian public? Yeah, well, yeah. When they were asked about euthanasia, and they believe they, they, the majority of the public, I think, supported euthanasia for disabled people. They three percent of the population that die in Canada now are being euthanized, are being, are being murdered, and which is massive numbers. It, it is, and in that figure, they include Parkinson's, dementia, prolonged grief, depression. ADHD, autism, or prolonged grief, um, depression. If you look at, I think in the UK, mental health amongst children, depression rose 500% in Good 2020. Mm. So is, is one going to say, well, we've got these patients here that have been on these drugs 
we can't cure them now, so we'll put them on end-of-life care. This is very real. And, and if, if, you, if you go back to Nazi Germany and you look at the letter that the doctors wrote and that Adolf Hitler signed off on, I think it was Borrow as the doctor, what would, what would um, uh, substantiate a, a patient to have their, their, they were life unworthy of life, they were to be given a dignified death. It was, they had to go through a lot of um, process first. And how was that? If you look at all these things, who was it actually that had the authority? Who was it really that did the killing? It was the doctors and nurses because they gave them experimental drugs. They gave them concoctions of drugs to end their lives. They starved them and dehydrated them and they left them to die of exposure. The doctors and the nurses and the doctors in the, co the camps so decided who lived. Are you, drawing, are you drawing a comparison to that? I'm absolutely drawing a comparison. And, because and what's happened last two years? Because if you look at, in 2020, if you went onto the government websites and you looked at what was being passed under the Coronavirus Act, um, it used to be that if you um, were showing signs that you didn't have mental capacity, it had to be three psychiatrists would have to assess you to declare you to be detained under the Mental Health Act. You would then have an assessment done at six weeks and you also had uh, the right to appeal against your medication. And in 2019, there were 16,000 appeals against medication and 9,000 were upheld. Now with the Coronavirus Act, all of that was swept away you only needed one doctor to certify you to they be passed detained. The they didn't need to be a psychiatrist. You were not reassessed at six weeks and you had no right to appeal against your medication. So we've gone back 50 years. Also, all the care in the community, it all ended for these people. And in, in the 80s and 90s, uh, specifically in the 90s and onwards, all of these great big psychiatric hospitals were all closed. And all these people were just cast out into the community, care, care in the community. And many of them ended up on the streets. So, you know, this is, we've, we've gone backwards. And this was all passed uh, under coronavirus while people were watching Netflix, getting furlough, thinking it was a jolly, uh, and just being out and out idiots. You know, they, they, they are, it's not the government that uh, kills the people. It's the people. It's the people allowing it. And there are what? huge comparisons between um, Nazi Germany and also my, my children's piano teacher, sorry to interrupt you, he came over from Bosnia with a carrier bag. He got his wife and child out before. She's now a lawyer. And he, he was head of, uh, head of music at the University of Bosnia and his wife was head of economics. And I always remember, he, he, I bought a piano when I got pregnant like you do. And he taught Sebastian from when Sebastian was three and a half to play piano and then all my children. And I spoke to him about the war in the Balkans and he said this to me, that's former Yugoslavia for, for those who don't remember it. And, um, you know, look up Srebrenica, that's enough of a massacre for anyone. 4,000 people in one day? Men and boys. Boys. Young boys. I'm pretty sure you know, you know the man who, you know the man who ordered that massacre? Yeah, that's the level that Facebook had got me at with that guy. <laughs> but I mean, men, uh, these young, young boys slaughtered, thousands of them slaughtered, you know, walked out of there and the UN looked in the other direction. But anyway, that's a whole different thing. But the point, he said this one line to me and I'll never forget it. 
and this is, you know, a long time ago, over 20 years ago, he said, I saw my neighbours, my friends, my colleagues, my students, killing my neighbours, my friends, my colleagues, my students. And that's what we're seeing. And this is exactly mirroring Nazi Germany. It wasn't overnight. It was a drip, 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 till it becomes acceptable. Well, they're old, you know, they're old. We've got to do this. It becomes acceptable for... Um, yeah, yeah. So, and now um, people, as long as you keep the, the baying mob quiet, by giving them what they want, give them their holidays, give them their, give them their TV, their Netflix, their Sky, give them a little bit just before you yank the chain back again. Take away their civil liberties little by little. I mean, all this nonsense when I came through the airport, everything scanned and this and that, and they missed all sorts. And um, I worked for an airline for 10 years. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that you go through all of this nonsense because it's, it's, it's a war on the mind. It's nonsense. If you wanted to bring an aircraft down, you could, it's just rubbish. What about, okay, so I want to get in, I want, I want to get to COVID. Convid. Convid. I want to get into Convid. But before I do that, do you mind if I delve into your family life? Your oh, husband? Yeah, yeah, please. Is it husband? Ex-husband? <laughs> Ex-husband. Where's he from? I had to take a drink there because my mouth went dry when you called him husband. <laughs> um, he's from Iran. He's from Iran, so he's, is he a Muslim? He was brought up a Muslim, and Shia? he no. Um, his father actually, I can't. My actual outlaws were wonderful, okay. very very wealthy. His father had a Christian tutor, so they were very educated and very Western and glamorous and rich. Um, he he yeah Persian, from the Persian Empire, and he came to the UK when he was fourteen to study English, and then stayed with his parents. No, on his own, and stayed with a cousin. Okay. And then so, stayed. when did you meet him? So I met him, I dated his friend. Uh, they're not friends anymore. Um, so that was, uh, I met him, in, I married in 96. So I met him in 92, and I began dating him in 94, and we got married in 96, and we split up in 2014. So I was with him a long time. Okay. He was with him a long time. And was he, when you was with him, was he religious? No. Because you're religious, right? I'm Christian, but I wasn't then. Okay, you wasn't No, he's, he wasn't at all. Not well, at okay. all. Um, just wasn't. He was... Um, was he a good man? Was your, you've got four children, right? He was... Um, without going into too much detail because of the humility of my children, okay. he was a very good earner. He was a very good provider. Um, he, he... We had a very nice lifestyle, but he was very abusive. And it doesn't, you know, in, and I'm taking full responsibility because we do, we do have a duty, and, and this is why I look down at it, it's very painful, but um, if I can say this to anyone listening to this, when, when a woman stays for all kinds of reasons, or a man, a man stays, you know, it's not just women that suffer abuse, men suffer abuse as well, there's a lot of abusive women. When someone stays because of the lifestyle or because they're afraid to leave, you've got to remember that you're shaping your children and they will be shaped by what they see and hear. Do you mind if I delve into that? Yeah, no, go. <laughs> so, when you say abusive, because you're a very strong lady, yeah? I've watched her. So... I am now. You are now, okay. Yeah, because so, if you're in an abusive relationship, um, 
how did, when you said you stay for a lifestyle, were you staying for a lifestyle or were you staying for your children? Were you staying for the family? Were you, were you thinking it's best to have a family? Or were you staying for a lifestyle? No, no, not for me, not a lifestyle yeah, for me. Okay. Um, uh, he, he held all the purse strings. Okay. So he had all Total the finances. Control. So I would, I would, if I argued with him, he'd take money away. And he would give me a set amount of money and I would buy clothes for the children and, and he would pay for everything else. Um, but it was very difficult. I remember we were once going on holiday and I'd argued with him, so he cancelled the holiday to Disneyland the week before and told the children, you know, it was... So it was like that. So, yeah, so there was... And lots of... He called me lots of names all the time. And, and in the end, you know, I even turned... I, I, I turned into an ugly person, but I also was a nervous wreck. Um, he was very... You know, mostly he would, it, he would spit on me. Spit he would on, kick yeah. me, yeah. And spit... It was in, physical as well. In front, yeah, but in front of the children. But, um, you and the know, children were how old at that point? From when they were, it started on my wedding night. On your wedding the, night? The verbal abuse started on my wedding night, yeah. Tell me about that. And that just, just he, it was the first time I'd ever really seen him have a drink. And he just began swearing when we were upstairs in the room on our own. And this was somebody I didn't know, I was so upset. And the next day, you know, I just, I loved him. He was the love of my life. And I forgave him. And then I ended up very sick and in hospital six weeks later in emergency surgery for an ovarian cyst. And when I came out of hospital, I'd done something he didn't like and he, he kicked me. That was the first time, the physical. And I, you know, I did on several occasions see lawyers to get divorced and then didn't. But I, I was afraid as well. I was also afraid that he would take the children if I split up with him. To Iran. Well, even just, they, they don't go that easy. You know, it's very easy. People don't understand, it's very easy to take a child, they go to their own country and they get a birth certificate in their own country and a passport from their own country. Yeah, do easily and thousands family. of children go uh, missing yeah. every year from the UK. So for every woman out there that's going, oh, I'm in love, I'm in love, well, you may well be. And, but, but ultimately, when all the kissing stops and you get into real life, culture is something that people should take very seriously. What do you mean by that? What, what do you think well, the culture played a, played a role into uh, well, why yeah, you... yeah, because it's a completely different culture. Uh, for, for us, we would be like, well, that's... You know, I know that my mother-in-law finds it terrible that I would get the house in divorce. Um, and, and, you know, it was a very legal... It was, it, was a, it was a divorce and it was fair and just. Because in Iran, you get nothing. You get your dowry, you get your jewellery, you don't even get your children. Because it's Islamic. And, and, and I'm not saying that's... That's just the way they're brought up. So it's very, so that's very alien for us. We're like, that's terrible, that's terrible. We're, we're very quick to criticise another culture. And I know some amazing, you know, Iranians, uh, Iraqis, Lebanese. I know some absolutely amazing. And they are wonderful. And like my in-laws were wonderful. They were wonderful grandparents. But our marriage, and my, my husband eventually, he was actually sectioned under the Mental Health Act. And uh, I found out other stuff about him that I never knew until he was broken that something had happened to him as a little okay. boy. And it was terrible. Not his family, but it had happened from outside his family. And so I'm and not... you didn't know about that until... I didn't know any of it. And I'm not saying... That's an excuse. No, and I'm not excusing any of it, but I was always afraid. So what I used to do from when my... Was you afraid physically from him? If you were living with him, was you in... I was afraid of everything. Fear? You was in, so you live, how many years did you live in fear with your husband? 17. You were for 17 years in fear. And how, how, how's that day to day? Was you happy? 
Sometimes I, sometimes I was really happy because I threw my life into my children. Three of them were IVF, the first three. So he couldn't, you know, he couldn't have children and, we, and then he went and had surgery and we had the last one. It's a big surprise, but um, I had wonderful times. I just threw myself into being a mum. We didn't have much of a relationship, but we did lots together as a family. At the weekends, we would do lots of family things. But you had to, you know, he could, there was no warning when he was going to go, when he was going to go off and he would be really, really abusive. Would he be, would your children witness this? Yeah. They saw it all. So your children grew up in their childhood witnessing their mother aiming in fear and being... Well, they saw me kicked, they saw me spat by, on, by, by they me. heard lots of shouting. Between the two of us, the shouting. Yeah. Um, they saw the, the, the spitting. Uh, he was very abusive. Eventually he was getting abusive with the children and Ralph. It was a very volatile... Was he abusive to the kids? He, he did get quite abusive, to, yeah, towards the end, which then I would step in. And he was, he didn't know, and Sebastian actually did phone the police on two occasions on his dad. Sebastian, that's your oldest son. Yeah, so there, you know, this, and, and I can, there's a lot, listen, it's not just Iranians, this is white. Of course, white in, families, in all households. Do you, all of this is wrong. Do you talk to him now? My ex. Yes. I, I took the children to see him in Dubai, the, um, a couple of years after we split up. And then I took them to see him in Batumi, in Georgia. And then after that, I didn't want to go anymore. Um, he was really abusive in Dubai, but he was engaged then. He's remarried now to a younger woman, and and he lives in another did you, country. Did you warn her? Pardon? Did you warn her? Well, she's Iranian, and also, you know, he's not got that pressure. He worked in banking in the city. He's had lots of therapy now. Um, the children are grown. There's no pressure on him anymore. I don't know. Maybe he's having a good marriage. And also, you know, some couples just together are not good. So maybe... Me, from my culture and the way I was, was a bad combo with him. And there was, there was a lot of things that were really sad. I remember when he just, when he, just before he was sectioned, um, and then when he was going to be sectioned again, they were trying, um, I had to get him out of the UK and back to Iran. And I worked with his family on getting him on the flight, getting him into London. And he said to me, you know, I always knew you would leave me. Why did I do it? Why did I do all of this? And Did uh, you leave him? Uh, I eventually. After 17 years. I, I met someone else, and okay. I'm, and I'm not. I'm completely ashamed that I did that because it's still adultery. I wasn't a Christian, however, I didn't want to be with that person. But what it did do is it gave me the courage to do it because I'd, you know, for years when my youngest daughter, I used to steam open the bills. I used to steam them open, photocopy them, and then iron them shut. And I unpicked his briefcase and photocopied his Iranian passport. Why? Because I was always planning. And then I okay, put, them, so I put okay. them in a plastic envelope underneath the carpet in my daughter's wardrobe, underneath the toy box. And when I finally, he knew that that was it, he disappeared and he cancelled every single bill. Financial He left us with literally nothing, nothing. And that was when I pulled this folder out and was like, right. <laughs> and I'm ready then, for this. And, and I'd, I'd also got, the year before, I'd gone back to university to get my nursing registration back. And I always remember... How I did, old was you? So when you finished with him, how, old, how long ago was that? So I was, um, I was 48 when we split up, 46 when I was diagnosed with cancer. At a couple of years before that, I went to Brighton School of Nursing. I applied. I used to do cash back in the garage all the time. 
and it wouldn't show on the bank statement because I had this card I could, I could use for little things. 20 quid, 30 quid, and I used to save the money in a purse. And I used to clean someone's house and I'd save it and save it. And, and I applied to do my return to practice and I remember at the interview saying to her, I need to get away from my husband. I want, I want to get my job back. I want to work. I want a life. And I remember saying that. And um, <laughs> anyway, and I did. So I got my, got my, and he was very supportive then. I got my registration back and I opened an aesthetics business doing Botox, filler peels. And then I got diagnosed with cancer. Okay, so you split with him at the time. No, I, I oh, got you... diagnosed at 46. Yeah, and then as I was you. getting myself on my feet, building my business. And then he was very good then. For the first, for the first a few months, he was really good and supportive. And then he told my children I was rotting from the inside and there was a coffin in the loft. And my kids were screaming. And I, I had to then lie to them and say, no, he's just, daddy's just lying. He's just telling those fibs again. And then eventually I did tell Sebastian, he was a little bit older, but I didn't tell the other three. And I, you know, and then, you know, as, as it got towards the two years before we split up, he used to come up to me and sniff me and say he could smell it growing in me and he gave me two years and I was going to rot. And, and you know, it was just me reaching momentum and it's then that was it. Yeah. So... Psychological. It is, it is. Well, it's just, it's the typical abuse cycle. Yeah. And then he would buy me things, you know, a brand new car and, and jewelry. I had so much jewellery. But it, it, I, I'm not the, listening. The, I'm the not, relationship you was having, what you said, what you was having a relationship when you was with him with someone else. The, nine days before it all ended. And did that last? No, um, no but we're but good friends. Okay. We're good friends still. Um, he he was kind to me. He was kind to me. Was that a shock? If you've been um, through 17 years of abuse, I think. Was that something? I you, think um, people. I think the whole domestic violence thing, it's, it's, it's a very subtle thing because you, you, don't, you, you almost get lost until you don't know who you are anymore. And, the, and you don't ever come out of it unscathed. Um, you, you know, I had a big meltdown, which is why I ended up reading the Bible. My, my friend got me reading the Bible. What year was that? Um, two, 2018, I think it would have been. When you say meltdown, what do you mean, breakdown? I just, no, no, I just was consumed with sadness and, and all my joy disappeared and I felt it was all my fault. I'd, he'd left the UK, my children didn't see him very much, I'd, I'd exposed them to years of it. I took full responsibility for the whole thing. And, um, and that was the Which lowest... Which wasn't really your fault, though. Well, I, I, think, I think one has to accept, accept and own all your stuff. Because it's at that point that you then become... You go back up. Okay. And so I, 2018, I, yeah, so I don't really... You know, I don't go into all the... the uh, I don't think about it anymore. You know, I've just cleared all my house out of ornaments, all stuff that... Well, that is an era that's entered. So what I try to do now is I think, well, what do I want? I look at the fact that he's, he's good to my kids. He supports them financially. He'll help them with university and things. And they go and visit him. So that's... You, you, your children, four children, mm. um, their education? They've got an amazing education. They all went to... One went to Eton on a scholarship. One went to Rodin on a scholarship. They went to a little village school, Christian school. Then they went to grammar schools. Then they got the scholarships. And then they all went to the Russell Group universities. One's just finished Cambridge. The oldest finished LSE after Eton. One's at LSE and one's at University College London, the top universities. What of it? 
<laughs> in, in a nutshell. It sounds like they've had an incredibly successful education. They could all read and write before they went to school. They could was all that? add. And whose doing was that? I, mine. Yours. I would get 60 books out of the library every Friday. I took them to museums. You, in, this, I, in this time of your four children, did you work or was you work? I didn't work for the that? first eight years. Okay. And then so I began working. And I, I used to work school school hours for myself, my own business. To make sure you were there when they Yeah, were, when they I were. wanted to be there to pick them up at school and everything, yeah, and I... I do you think that's important? I do. I think do we... Think people have lost that? I think this having two cars on the drive and having a big house and going on several jollies a year and expecting your children to go to a nursery from 8am till 6pm... After school clubs. And... I, I think it's wrong. I think when a man comes together with a woman, not that they're not equally yoked, because they are, but she must stand beneath him. She's the foundation to the family, and he must, in turn, support her. And I think it's important that, that she looks after the children and guides them, because that's all gone. And Would you say, when you say stand beneath him, you mean in the sense of... Um, because you, you, you don't mean in the sense of what you've experienced. I don't mean stand beneath, yeah, you know, they're above you, but, um, you know, I, I, I see men, um, uh, men now totally emasculated. They don't know where they belong. You know, you see them sitting on those two chairs out the changing rooms at Marks and Spencer. I think it's the same with women, though. Yeah, they, because the, the women, women are aggressive. Women are, are aggressive and they all want to have these massive careers. They do, and then they want to have all these kids, and then all of a sudden it's not exciting anymore. He's not got, you know, enough tan or... Uh, muscles and you know and they're bored and so they haven't got that excitement but life isn't actually about all excitement it's about peace it's about having peace so they don't they you know they they leave and then you've got the whole the whole system has been set up so that these women can have children from different dads get the maximum amount of benefits so it, it doesn't pay to have the man in the vicinity and then what do you have you have children, children that are more likely to end up in the judicial system, so they keep that going, and children that can then disappear and be abused. The purpose break down the family. Absolutely. All on purpose, J.D. Rockefeller funded the suffragette movement. Funded the suffragette movement to weaken the family, to get the mums out of work, to, so that they could basically school your children. And, and also from a war perspective, um, you know, if you take the children, the women will follow, and then the men will follow. So they, they're taking the children. I had a deputy head teacher showed me some documents from 2020, and they were told, um, should any of the children in the classroom discuss COVID, anti-vax, or anti-5G conspiracy theories, they were to tell the head teacher. And also, if they had friends themselves that were discussing that, they were to tell the head teacher, and it was to be passed on to the police. Well, this is Soviet Russia. And... So, and of course, it was passed through Parliament as well. Was it 2020 or 21? Children can now be used for spying. Yeah, to give information. So, to talk to me. So, okay, so you've gone through your family, your home life. Actually, while we're on that, no, actually, we'll, we'll do COVID first, because COVID's where you exploded. But it's, it's good to hear your history that you were well awake and you had gone down all these holes mm. way before this hit, the, this hit most people's. Um, most people's knowledge of what was happening. So tell me what woke you up when COVID... Tell me, what did you so think I, when COVID started and people started I was, dropping on TV? 
I was working on local radio once a month as the health, health expert. I never gave myself that title. And I was, um, I was seeing patients for nutrition. I was starting to do lectures and interviews. And I did a lot of work with Rachel Seller, the forensic nurse who should interview her. It's a hoot. And we were doing... Um, she's the what? All the one that? She's called the forensic nurse, okay. exposing medical crime one misdiagnosis at a time. And we were doing a lot about the military and the these vaccines that they were forcing all the military to have. Um, and all of a sudden it came out about Ebola. And I thought, well, this is a pile of pants because the nurse that had Ebola, uh, if this is such a, a disease that everyone's gonna get, why would you fly her from a country with Ebola into the UK without Ebola to be treated? You wouldn't, you wouldn't. So we kept laughing about it. And I went on the radio and it said COVID-19, COVID. So I researched and I always remember I researched the Chinese public health website and they'd started mandatory all vaccines in the December of 2019. So every Chinese citizen would have had flu shots. And I think one of the flu vaccines for 2019 was Fluvac with four untested influenzas and highly pathogenic, highly disease causing H1N1. And Wuhan was the test city for 5G in the autumn of 2019 as well. And then I found this and it said, I was looking and I came across some stuff and it said that the, the virus had an inversion in the genome sequence indicative of vector technology. So this was something that had been made. So I went on to look. That's what it means. There's something in the virus that when they, when they check it, it's not natural. Yeah. It's been it's, man-made. It's fake. Yeah, yeah. It's a fake. So, so off I went, 21 minutes, I put my phone, I live streamed from the studio to Facebook. Facebook. Where, where was the studio? Uh, in Uckfield, Uckfield, okay. Uckfield And what, what is this radio station? It's just a little local okay. thing, ran by a load of fat DJs who think that they're DJs and journalists, but they were all weak, bald men. <laughs> fat ones and all. Yeah, and one of them's actually dead now. I, I wonder. From the vaccine? Uh, pro- pro- I don't know. Um, but anyway, the other guy that was on with me, he got the sack as well. Um, he cool. later got the sack. So, um, I went in there, live streamed it, and I talked about... Uh, they'd had some MP in before me. She, she was an MP and she was a registered nurse, taken over by the government in 2001, the NMC. And she was saying that vaccines were safe, which is outrageous, it's preposterous. No vaccine has ever been proven safe and no vaccine's ever been proven effective. So she'd been saying this, and I said on this show, well, you either have a truth or you have a lie. Which is it? You know, a half-truth is still a lie. So I talked about Harold Shipman, I talked about Beverly Alley, I said how we shouldn't trust doctors and nurses, and I also um, alluded to a case in America where this doctor tested drugs on disabled children. I talked about this genome sequence, I talked about 5G, Anyway, off I went to the cinema that night and I came out and I just checked 50,000 views and I thought, oh no. And then the next day, my friend Tony said, have you seen that? This, and when, when, let's get the time in here. This is right February, at the start. February 2020, not even lockdown. Okay. The next thing, 250,000 views on, and I thought, oh gosh. And then it... It was sharing everywhere, and it was well over a couple of million. It was everywhere, and my Facebook page exploded. Um, Suddenly it was full, and it had thousands and thousands following it. And then my sister called me from Australia, and her exact words were, way bitch, you're on the telly. (laughs) 
<laughs> and, um, and I said, what? She said, you're on the telly, look, I've screenshotted it. <laughs> and there I am sitting in the studio next to the microphone, um, conspiracy theorist. Then they did a story in the newspapers and then my phone started ringing, all different people started ringing. Um, I did one on Five Pillars. I've done a couple on there for them. They're the biggest. Five Pillars. The media platform for Muslims. The Muslim lads from Bedford? Yeah. yeah I know. So I did... Uh, Dilly Hussein? Yeah. So I know Dilly, so I've done, I did, I've done another show. I disagree with Dilly a lot, but I, I, I'll tell you I've what met I with Dilly a few times. I'll tell you what, I disagree with Dilly and I'm really sad because he was very, very respectful to me and so was his brother. Both are new dads, both got babies and they've both had the vaccines. Dilly, you wanker. I'm really sad. Come on, man. I'm, I'm just sad. Dilly. And I'm hoping... I hope that, do you know what, that, should, that should destroy any credibility Dilly Hussein has within his own community. I know Dilly. Dilly. Dilly's a bit of a radical as well. Yeah, yeah, he is. Dilly's but they, uh, you know, I can only speak about my experience. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Were very, oh, he's very, very nice for me. I met him in Bedford. I met very, up. very respectful. We for disagree me. on a lot, but and and they gave me a lot of airtime, and then they followed it up on Mother's Day, not listening. And he's got his kids vaxxed? No, I don't know. No, well, his wife was. He at the time he said his wife wasn't, but I was vaxxed. really sad because regardless of whether we agree with people's faith opinions, we're all we're all one. Mm. We're all. We're all children of God. We're all, um, you know, should be responsible for one another. So that makes me very sad. So this is, you've gone from talking to how many people originally? Before this, it's millions of people. Maybe 5,000 and now all of a sudden it's... Two million. And but what, what happened next was suddenly um, people started contacting me, doctors, nurses, relatives. And These are people who are going to have been seeing wrongs. Telling me of murder. They're, they're, they're telling me of murder. They're talking, yeah, because they don't know who to outlet to. There's no probably, yeah. They're telling me that they're whistleblowing the to you. They're telling me the nurses are fighting over food parcels and that dancing and In between dancing lying. And um, one nurse rang me up and she said, Listen, they've just announced on the news that we're full. I'm going to show you the waiting room. And she videoed it. Yeah, 200 empty, empty beds at Addenbrooke's. It's all at empty. Um, being told to put the lights on in the wards to make it look busy. A nurse that I was well good friends with told me how they were playing Connect Four and cards. And because I called her out on it, she doesn't speak to me anymore. But I am cool with that. You know, she came back to me now and apologised. Um, and it was a group of nurses, some who hadn't seen me for 20 years, but one that was my friend, who I'd loaned money to. They say that the people closest to you will be the ones to betray you. And she was the one that went to the NMC. What's the NMC? Nursing Midwifery Council. This was to try and remove your... Well, they did. They had this Mickey Mouse hearing and they said, oh, you've said that, you know, no one should wear a mask. I went, that's right. And, and I, I took Mark Steele with me and I stood behind all of it. And in the end... Can you, um, can we go... So, because you have stood staunch on it, on everything you've... I remember watching and thinking, this lady's fire and, and she's not backing down. Because most no. people back down. I watch it, whether it be our politics, COVID, when the breaking point comes, and the breaking point comes when the media campaign starts, and you had a media campaign. Oh, didn't that I? That was there to destroy you and slander you. I got, yeah. So, every day in the newspapers, every hour on the hour, I was on the BBC News. How, how, tell, they, me how, tell me how that, as a lady, tell me as, tell me as a lady, as a mother, as a, how is that? When you read these stories, like, well, I think that abusive marriage was training. That prepped you for it. It was training. Because I know some people go, I don't care. Really? Um, Sitting there reading a national newspaper, knowing I that all your neighbours are reading it. I, I didn't read it. Well, my neighbours, um, 
they jab central. I mean, one of them has had seven. You know, they're all jabbed. They've lived next to me for 21 years. They didn't come out and come and see if I was alive and well when the police were entering my house at all lights on at nine at night. No, they gossiped about it. So they said, and I don't have a gardener because I'm pop posh. I had a gardener because I hurt my back and I gave him a mower. So I still use him. He just mows. Um, but anyway, she, you know, oh, the police were in her house. We were so frightened. If that had been me, I'd have been straight over and gone, have you got a warrant, lads? They didn't even have a signed warrant. That's a, we'll get on to the police thing, so it, it's blowing up. It's on the but news. yeah, no, did, I, did it bother me? Um, Honestly? Honestly? No, no. I don't, no. <laughs> Go on, I love it. No, it didn't bother me because, because for three months I slept on the sofa to watch the sun come up because I knew that every book I'd read that my husband had, the Committee of 300, let none dare call it conspiracy, Agenda 21, we were here right now. Briefly, briefly, people who haven't read Agenda 21, what is it? It's basically, uh, they're gonna kill you after they've taken everything from you. That's basically what it is. Klaus Schwab. And anal Schwab. And uh, Ming the Murphy. So, so, you, so, so, so you're sitting there, you've read these books. I've read all the books. You've gone through the cancer treatment yourself. You've read all these different books. These I'm now books, a Christian. These books would have been labelled as conspiracy theorist books. Oh, no, I, read, I didn't just read those books. I read masses of books of my ex-husbands, okay. of whistleblowers, of government stuff that happened, FBI, all the stuff about Twin Towers. I'd read it all. And then COVID hits and you're like, we're I, here. I said, we're here. This is it. This is it. I've had four children and the life that we knew and that they knew has gone forever. So I knew it was... So you it didn't was, decide... It was no longer live and let live. The they cross. changed it to live and let die, if you remember. Mm. So you... At the Super Bowl, they said live and let die. That's what they sang, and it should be live and let live. And I knew that we were right here, right now, this was it. How long before this did you find Christianity? When I got really uh, sad after my... Divorce. Divorce. And my friend, I met a wonderful woman and she spoke nine languages. She had Bibles in 11 languages. She was, she called herself the little bastard. Philomena. That's me. <laughs> she was, she was born out of wedlock in where the war. Where did you meet her? I met her because she came to uh, adopt one of the cats that I was fostering. And How many cats have you got? I did have 12, Maybe down to now. four now. Okay. So she, and two chihuahuas, she, she was the, the illegitimate child of a private who was billeted at her grandparents' um, railway inn during the war at Loch Maben. And he went away with the officer and they both died. And her mother was pregnant in her 30s, so she was sent away to have the child. And her sister said, if you don't come back with that baby, I'll never forgive you. So this baby went back in a time in the war when they were Protestants in Scotland and she was unmarried, and the grandparents and the aunt and uncle and the mother raised this daughter with nothing but love. Nothing but love. And she was the first woman to get a master's degree at St Andrews University. Oh. And she was... I couldn't save her. She was the most wonderful human being I've ever met in my life. She... She met a man by writing to him, and he was a BBC correspondent, and he was a widow, widower. And six weeks later, she had a conversation with him on the phone and she fell in love with his voice. That married him shortly after and moved to Tunbridge Wells. And she did the speaking newspaper for the blind. She was a hospital um, visitor for people that had no relatives. And she, she was everything pure and good to everything that was dark. 
in my life and I adored her. What did you say you couldn't save her? She got cancer. Okay. And she she got cancer. She died. It was in shortly after that. So it's 2000. I think it's 2019. She died early on, or late 2018. How, how quickly did the cancer spread? And how quickly? She was doing okay, and then she had radiotherapy, and then she lost the use of her legs, and and then very quickly, within six weeks, she she died. And um, do you mind if I ask, like, with your strong beliefs on that and treatment? Did you tell her? Did you? Preach? Oh yeah, we tried. We tried. But she didn't listen. She did. She did. Oh, she did. She okay. did. Lo she did juice things. She did the oh, diet. Okay. We did the enemas. But okay. it, not everybody can be saved. Okay. And she she died. And um, I took her cat. And, and she's the one who introduced you to Christianity. She introduced me to the Bible, and she told me to forgive myself because God loved me, and He forgave me. And forgave one, you for what? My sins. Adultery for breaking my marriage up, but she I was leaving her house It was only a few days before she died. She went into a hospice and died very very quickly when she got in there within two days But I was leaving her house and I and I knew that she was she had a temperature and And her voice had gone hoarse and I knew she was getting pneumonia and um, I was crying And I didn't want her to see me and I said oh god, I'm I'm so sorry. And she said to me, you're such an angel. And I said, oh my gosh, Wilma, I'm not. I've been such a slag in my life. I said, I've had, I've had boyfriends. I said, I've, I've done everything. And, and this Let's is, go out of that conversation. And this woman, this woman was a virgin until she married in her late 30s. And How old was she when she passed? Was um, she was in her 70s. Wilma. Wilhelmina, yeah, Wilma. Wilma. Okay. In her 70s. And she said, oh, she said, I've thought bad thoughts. She said, but God knows your heart and, and you don't know you're an angel. And I broke my heart. This podcast is brought to you by Urban Scoop. Any support to carry on this work will be greatly appreciated. Please visit urbanscoop.news forward slash support us. Thank you. She... You know, in my bag, I have something that was hers that I've still got that I carry everywhere with me. This uh, woman seems like she had a big impact in She did. Life. She saved me. She saved me. And she, um, her funeral was incredible. There was hundreds of people there. Her students. Everyone. Uh, every, she never had it. She only had an adoptive, uh, uh, sorry, a stepdaughter who was 17 when her mum died. All these people were there to see this, this woman and... All there and all these, we sent a generic email out to all these people in Pakistan and India. This woman was adored and she only knew how to love. And that's the thing you see, the devil uses fear and prejudice. The Lord uses faith and hope. And there's only two emotions. So would you say it was through her that, she said, you said she introduced you to the Bible, but did you see the positive influence that obviously it had on her. You saw her as an amazing human being. Yeah. Did you put she, that down to Christianity? It, it, she, it, it was that she lived by what she read, what she believed in. She lived by it. She lived by it. And um, she... So that's only five, what, five years ago? Yeah, just, yeah. Okay. So, and, and of course we know that the, the churches, I mean, I'm banned from a couple, but... Not that I really care. I did my own sermon one. Did you remember that, Dee? I did a sermon on vaccines in the pulpit of the church after I'd ripped all What do you the... think of the church? 
So, 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 so you, you're given the Bible. What, the buildings? They're lovely. No, yeah, they're beautiful. But what I mean is, you're given the Bible, um, you start studying it. I start reading it, yeah. You start reading it. Um, how does that change your life? Does it well, change your day-to-day? Does it, it change does. the way you thought? Does it, it change does. Who, you've, who you hung around with? What did it do? It does. Oh, it certainly did. Because I, I had a friend, actually, who did all this dominatrix stuff. You know, she used to go up to London, this gynaecologist on Harley Street, and she'd knock on the door and go in, put a dog collar on him, beat him, pee on him, and then she'd come back and tell me all about it, and he'd pay her. Pay you to get pissed on. And, and you know, she, she would tell me all about all these big orgies that went on around London that she would go to, with lawyers and judges and cops and everything. And I, I realised that I couldn't have her around me. You can't have that. Because it was immoral? You can't have that energy around you. Because it was negative? Well, it's, it's, it's dark. If you have a room that's pitch black, you put one speck of light in it, what does it do? It lights up the room. You can't, you can't go into that darkness. You've got to remove the light from it. You've got to go away from that darkness. You can't, because what do drinkers do? They hang out with drinkers. Yeah. What do smokers do? They hang out with smokers. What do fat women do? They hang out with fat women. Oh, I've probably offended them all again. But they do because it reinforces their yeah, yeah. negative behaviour. They get to go and do it. Acceptable. You know, whereas, where, where do you see fit people? They hang out with fit people. It's, and it's, Gluttony is sinful. Did you start going to church? Um, I haven't yet found, I found a few really weird ones. I went to one, I just, I was more or less told not to come back. What sort of church is that? It was, Do you a, know what I mean? it's like... it was a healing church and hey. uh, they, was, they were praising the doctors and praising the medicine. And then um, they served up at the end a tin of Quality Street. Oh, it's all right. <laughs> Tea, coffee, sugar, and I said, it's a healing church and you're serving up, you know, something as bad as crack cocaine. What, uh, as, in the, then, as in the sugar? Yeah. And <laughs> then, I, no, the sugar. And okay. then I started to, t and the milk, and, you know, the, the A1 milk, <laughs> oh, what yeah. it does. I mean, it could go on, but, um, and, uh, and then I started to talk. I asked him about <laughs> vaccines. I said, what's your stance on vaccines? He said, oh, and I said, well, do you know that this is in vaccines? And I went through what was in vaccines. And he said, I don't think you should talk about that here because I think that's very distressing and maybe we're not the church for you. I thought, oh, there's Spanish violinist, elbow. <laughs> elbow. <Yeah. laughs> it's my good boom, boom, Scottish, uh, Spanish <laughs> joke for today. Yeah, so um, I think my local church, remember that the churches were built in such a way, the very old churches, the windows were put strategically so that the light would hit at a certain point. The, the roofs were built for the acoustics because there's, there's only your six solfeggio tones and then your other three tones. And 528 hertz completely matches green in the electromagnetic color spectrum. So when two or more gather in his name, he will be there. That's prayer. So when two of you or more of you go, into these old churches with the light hitting the hydrogen molecules, where mostly water, H2O, the natural light hits the hydrogen, the red goes into the nucleus, the violet goes into the electrons that are spinning and supercharges it. H2O, we are, we are hydrogen, we are water. That light would energize the body 
And what is 528 hertz? It's, it's that frequency, it's the healing frequency. And the acoustics of the church were set up. So it would be prayer through healing and healing through prayer. Do you think that without your newfound belief since 2018... Well, that's quantum physics. Okay. That's not my belief. Do you, do you, think, do you think without, the, without, without Jesus, or without the Bible, do you think you'd have been able to so strongly stand as you have? Because I, I don't want to downplay, I don't think you should downplay what it's like, what you've gone through for the last five years. Yeah? With, being, with the, the labelling, the attacks, the newspapers, the demonising, the slandering, the cancelling... With all of these things, do you think you'd have been able? Do you think you could have fought it the same way you fought it? Do you think you'd still be as happy as you are without? Oh, I'm not always happy. I get sad days. If we were always happy, we wouldn't know what sad is, and we wouldn't know what happy is, would we? I get down days like everybody else, um, and I go for long walks. Um, probably, I think. I think that. I think we're 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 given free will, but but the Lord knows every hair on our head. He knows our beginning and our end. And he, what we do in the middle is we're still going to get to where we get to, where we're meant to be. But when, I, I think what I've learned the most, and it is an ongoing journey, is we are judged, we're told in, you're told in scripture, and I don't mean all these half-baked, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic, I'm a whatever, they're, they're full of shit. You know, they're, they're taking aborted fetal cell lines from fetuses that died hideous deaths injected into them because what because they're afraid of dying if they were really christians they wouldn't be afraid of dying because they'd know you don't die so they're liars and and they they're the worst kind at least the ones that go i'm not at i least... don't think most people who stand on tv as representatives of christians even believe in christianity Oh, they I don't think they believe yeah. in Jesus. I look at my, my local church, I think, you're a Marxist, mate. You've just infiltrated this church to push your own political bullshit. Well, mine is on his... He said, oh, I said to him, if you, you've had any of those... He'd had three. I said, have you read your Bible, Thessalonians? This is my big vicar. And he goes, oh, I did it, Th Thessalonians. And I said, well, how can you have your flock and you've had three shots when it specifically warns you in Scripture about this? And he went, oh, we can't get into that. Well, you need to leave this church as well. Anyway, I, well, I went and did my own, and, you know, my, my friend filmed it. And we put it out on social media. There well, I'm in the pulpit. It's actually, no, it's, I'm actually in the pulpit okay. of that church. Go and on. it's it's on it's on Bitshoot or Brighton, it's somewhere, and it's me giving it welly you right check. across the church. And we've ripped all the yellow tape up, we've hid the hand sanitizer, I did the whole thing. I did admit it, actually, to the vicar later as well. But um, I think the one thing... I've learned is when it tells us in scripture, all these people going off and, and praying for wherever, we're told we will be judged by every word we speak. Well, what is words? It's a sound, it's a vibration. What does vibration do? We know that everything, every living organism has its own vibration. So when you hear something, you're not hearing it, you're hearing that vibration on your eardrum and then the little bones inside. So cancer cells have their own frequency. Your white cells do. Every living thing has its own frequency. So when we're told we're judged by every word we speak, when we speak, it's a vibration, it's a frequency. So if we're speaking everything that's filth and ugly and swearing all the time, and did you see that? She's, she's a black lady. And it was her new video, and she's like got her hands on the lawn, and she's got this big massive behind. And she's doing this thing where the... The backside's moving like four pigs under a blanket, but it's naked, all in all directions. No, Have you not seen no, it? No, And she's singing. She's a pop star. Okay. And she sings, you know, F, and this 
Pussy be tight like a nun's. This is what's being sung down people's radios, in the nightclubs. We will be judged by every word we speak. So if, if the sun, the hydrogen from the sun going in, into the, sorry, if the light from the sun, the sun is mostly hydrogen, I should say 75%, going in to the hydrogen molecule, affecting it and energizing it, and what are we mostly? Water, H2O. We know that when light hits water, it causes water to separate. You get H3O2 over here and H2O. This goes to a hydrophilic border, a water-looking border. You can put an electrode between the two and you'll light a light bulb. That's your potential energy. That's what makes your muscles contract and relax, that. So if light and sound have the ability to change matter, should you be listening to that? No, I don't think you should. No, I think it's disgusting. Know, I think current music and all this, all this. All of it. It's all, but it's all by design. It's all satanic as well. It is. All of these things are are to corrupt. Successfully. The temple. And you, the you, yeah. You said to me as well. He's talked in the car. I said you've got ten billion miles of DNA. Mm. Ten million. Ten billion miles of DNA in one genome sequence. You can't even get your head around that, can you? If you take out one piece of DNA, like that, put it over here, and then put another piece from there, over here, completely changes who you are. Well, you... While, while we're on DNA, well, I've got my leaf in this, right? Yeah, so if you Sorry. take a piece out, yeah. that is your binary code from the, from the creator. That is, you don't have junk DNA, you, it's a you lie. You made a comment that the RMNA... Messenger RNA. ...messes with the DNA. Johnson and Johnson was a piece of DNA. So how does they it work? They attacked you for this, yeah. Yeah, but I've been proven to be correct. There's a Swedish study. Have you seen the Swedish yes, study yeah, just yeah. recently? Yeah. Where it turned, it went into liver and turned into DNA. Yes. The vaccine did. Yes. Yeah. I've not been wrong on any of it. No, no, no. It, it, but at the time, you were under massive attack for that. But and I was correct. Totally proven correct. So that's why it didn't bother me because I knew I was right. I was 100% correct. I always knew I was correct. Just to clarify that, you, 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 you come out and said something very early on about the mRNA vaccines and they will affect and change people's DNA. I said they're going to come for your children. Yeah. That injection, that vaccine has the ability to change your DNA. Which, which at the time was, no, not was not out. There was a massive attack against you. You were a conspiracy theorist. You oh, they called me, even some people that are in the so-called freedom called me mental. For saying that. But I, I knew And recent I studies, because I found one, when I was researching, I found the Swedish one that um, has come out and showed that the vaccine turned into DNA, which is insane. Changes your DNA. Changes your DNA in the liver. So you've been right about most things, actually, okay? Hey? Tell me something I've been wrong about. I always say that to my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask, in all of this that's gone on, what's the most negative moment? What's been the most difficult thing that's happened for you to deal with? I suppose, family-wise, um, it was, I feel very sad for my son. That's very difficult because that will never go away for him. Can, can we, can you explain to us what happened with your son? So my son... And when, um, and when this was, how early on in your activism or your rise? Well, there's a piece that I don't really talk about. Um, just before uh, 
COVID and all the rest of it happened, my son went to my mother in Australia and said that his dad had told him that the house belonged to the children, not to me. And of course it belongs to them when I die, I've got a will. But all proceeds of the house, the sale, if I want to sell it or I want to live in it, all go to me. Um, even though his name was on the mortgage at the time, it's had to stay on it and I pay it. So my mother had said, no, you're wrong. And they were- Why would you tell me having that comment? Because my ex-husband had told him to okay. get, get the house off your mom and you can sell it and you can all live in it in London. Which was- Do uh, that to your mum? No, That's why you My son told my, my ex-husband oh, told my son that. To do that, okay. And my other children. Okay. And continues to tell them that. And, um, and he can get on with saying what he likes. But, um, and he went to my mother and so then, when all that came out and he was in the news, and he wasn't just on one news channel, he was on all, he was on the BBC World Service. He was in the news, so basically... MI5-funded BBC World Service. You, you, you've become, you're all over the news, the media attacking you, they then use your own son. Yeah, you never see politicians using, using politicians' sons and daughters, do you? No, they did this to Paul Gassar, a politician in the United States. They used all of his brothers. And they used his brothers to attack him in the election campaign. Because Paul Kassar's made... Because he, as a politician, he's a great politician. Mm. He's, he's making inroads. He's, he's causing them problems. So you're causing them problems. So what, when did you know that your son had betrayed you? you... I, uh, that sounds really weird. But as God's my witness, yes. I, I knew it was coming. I felt it. So you knew there was something coming. And I said, yeah. Well, where are you sitting when you find... Where, where are you sitting when it breaks on the news? Um, I, was, I was sitting at my table with my cats, and um, I was, Kevin Corbett and I had been talking, and then I think Kevin rang me, and it was all over Twitter. You had no prior knowledge? You had no, no warning from your son? Uh, they, did, they, they did write to me, the BBC, and okay. said, did I have a comment? Okay. And I said what I said. I consider what it deeply, I think, I can't remember what it was at the time, but something like, I find it deeply disturbing that you'll do what your controllers tell you to do. Something like that. And... I thought, well, I'll just roll with it. So I didn't watch. I mean, what he was saying wasn't actually me. It was his dad that was into George Soros and told him all that stuff. So I didn't know a lot of the content. I didn't listen to the content, all of it, for probably a good year and a half. Was that because it was too difficult? It could hear it seeing your son want... in the newspaper. I didn't. Would you, would you describe it as slagging you off? I, yeah, but I didn't want it to affect my love for him. So I didn't want to listen to Can it. Can you tell me what he said about you? He said that I'd um, raised him telling him he was the Messiah. Never, ever used that word, ever. Um, I told him, him he was so wonderful and loved and bright and gifted. He was, he is. Amazing young He's man. He's won the top awards of his university. He has. Uh, amazing young man. Uh, he said that I was always, I was frightening them about these, you know, George Soros and everybody was going to take over. I didn't even know any of that. That was in his dad's, some of his dad's books. In fact, in the beginning... That's right. Yeah. Oh, his dad is 100% correct. Yeah. And uh, so that was that. But the rest of the stuff, um, I don't know where that came from. And what stuff? He was talking about, you know, I was terrified. I was this, I thought... He's saying you was terrified. No, he was terrified. Oh, he was, I was terrified of terrified. you. Terrified. No, Breen brought up he was terrified that someone was going to get him, the government, and this. So he portrayed you as a conspiracy theorist, crazy mum. Yeah, but of course, none of that, none of that was true. And lots of friends who were around and knew him at the time were like, that's really weird. Where did all that come from? I went, don't know. Because I used to take them to the museums in London on rainy days. 
I take them. We had a trailer for the car, for the bikes. We went to school holidays. I'd have an itinerary. I took them out constantly. They had such a good time. So I didn't know where it came from. Anyway, um, then he started going on to lots of other programmes as well. And uh, it, it just, well, it weren't just one interview? No, no, it was Oh, loads. I thought he'd just done an interview of one oh, newspaper gosh, no, he went around the was, world. It was Byline TV. It was on American Scum. news channels. How old was How old was your son? He is... Well, I had him when I was 33, so he's coming up for 25 this December. So when all this was going on, this is five years ago? 2020, he's, 21, yeah. He's 21, 22. Just coming out of university? Yeah, he was... Just trying to yeah. understand where he's at. Yeah, he was trying to yeah, where he's in, at. In, in trying to get a job, and he went to so Hong Kong to work for a hedge fund. And he's gone through Eton. Yeah, gone so to Eton. All of gone his... to LSE, which is a Fabian University. So he's gone to Eton, he's gone to LSE. So all of his friends and their parents, I'd say, would be the elite. Mm. Correct? They're, they're, oh, they were. They're all part of the Actually, elite. Actually, apart from... Politicians. Is it D D Dellingpool? Dellingpool interviewed him. Oh, yeah, I love him. Everyone go and watch that interview from years ago, before... Dellingpool's son went to school with Sebastian okay. and he interviewed him Okay. when he was 18, when he was still at Eton. Dellingpool's great. So I wonder what he thinks now Dellingpool's on the right side. Yeah. So, so, so your son, so you get, it hits the news, he's making all these accusations against you. How do you feel as a mother when that happens? Um, what are you thinking? I was actually thinking about that young boy in Russia who turned on his own his own father and they ended up killing him and there was a statue a monument in his honor that stood for many many years in Russia it's it's been removed now that's I can't remember Which young boy? Yeah, so there was a um... there was a young man and he he grasped his family up you okay. know in Russia in Russia when it was the Sorry. Soviet Union and his father I think it was his father or his uncle killed him and there was a, a monument you know, representing this young boy's bravery. But and now it's been torn down. And that was what sprung to mind. And then this Conservative Woman magazine did a write-up and actually wrote about that as well, this Russian. Because I thought, you know, I know I'm correct. 100% correct. I didn't want to be correct. It would be lovely to be wrong. And I could live with being called a nutter. But it wouldn't bother me. Um, but I knew I was correct. And so I knew that eventually, in time, this would all turn around. My good friend's sitting here with us, and she remembers right from those early days when I came out, and it was terrifying everyone, remember? And I stayed with it and stayed with it and stayed with it. And I knew that eventually, my son is going to have to face that, because... Did you, did you cry? No. Did you feel, did you feel betrayed? I, I do feel betrayed, and I'd be, I'd be, I feel betrayed by a lot of people, but that's something to let go of because it's in the past. But that betrayal will sit much harder with them because they know. They know, they know themselves, like my friend, Joe, who borrowed money and did all this terrible talk about me and went to the Nursing and Referee Council. She knew that I was right. She knew about my stance on natural healing. That's going to sit very heavy with her, not me. Yeah, they'll carry it. But did it cause a rift with the others, with the other children? No, my other three kids stayed out of it. My my twin boy as well at the time. He, I think he was a bit cross that Sebastian had done it, and he, and Sebastian lied as well. You know, he pulled him into it. 
I rang my brother up and said this, and he said, no, he didn't. But I said, well, just leave it. Just, I didn't want, because my kids are very, they, sometimes they're close, sometimes they're not. Have you tried to understand why he'd done that? Uh, first of all, I thought, well, he came to my house the following summer. He just turned up. After we'd done endless interviews, I got a text from him. One of our beloved cats, Mo, with one eyeball, Captain Mo, um, had died. And, and he asked, could he come and pay his respects to, to Mo's grave? We're big cat lovers in our family. And I, di I didn't respond because I didn't, I didn't trust anybody at that point. You know, were my texts going to be filtered to the newspaper? So I never responded. Which is a that must be an awful position to be in with your son. Yeah, well, can't not even, just your son. That's who you should train. Trust. Everybody, you've got to be careful. So I know the, I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the next thing, I was, I was putting makeup on. And the gate went, the side gate, which was unusual. Someone was entering my property. And they'd opened the bolt. And it was Sebastian and his girlfriend. So he'd brought his girlfriend to meet me, his new girlfriend. Which he knows me so well that he knows... I would never have to say to him, why did you do that? Or even in front of the girl, because he knows he's done it. Yeah, yeah. He knows well, that we... I know the truth. So he doesn't, he knows I'm not going to, I don't need to discuss it with him. So your son comes in the garden, comes through the gate with his new girlfriend. What's the first thing that you say to him? Hello. Do, do, do you embrace each other? He said, he said, oh, oh yeah, no, no. He said, I was really shocked. He went, I was really shocked. And he went, hello, mommy, I've, I've bought, this girl, I won't say her name, to, see, um, to meet you. And I was like, oh, hi. And she wasn't from the UK. And, um, and then she, he said, um, I wanted to show around my childhood home. I said, oh, OK, would you like a drink? And I got some coconut water out. And he went off and he played the piano for her. And then when he came back in the kitchen, I was making a juice. He went, oh, um, she likes all natural health and natural healing. And I was taking supplements. He went, will you tell her what you're doing? And then we chatted, my, his girlfriend and I, and we talked about, I was eating sauerkraut, and I asked, did they want something to eat? And then they were going off uh, to this particular hotel for afternoon tea, and so I gave them a lift into the town, and he, he was showing her where, he's, you know, where he was born, because she wasn't from the UK. And, and that was it. It was, it was quite bizarre. It's just like, did that really happen? But, um, did he continue the, to keep in contact after that? No. Just... Go on again. Just for that. Wow. And, um... Do you think that's because... So, I, I tried to view it. I found out later he had... He was having... <coughs> he has had counselling in the past. Over that, this? No, he, he had counselling at Eton. Over what? Uh, um, the, the housemaster said he was the angriest he'd ever seen a boy. <laughs> so, he's a young Over man in, full of anger. Yeah, he, yeah. It's and, normal. And... It is, and uh, so he'd had some counselling, and then... What I've, was his anger stemming from? I don't know. Okay. It's never discussed it with me. And then his... I'm sure a lot of it will be from the childhood. The, I mean, we broke up at a very... You know, he was... When we finally broke up and got divorced, you know, he was doing his GCSEs. It was a very difficult time, and he was absolutely rage-filled. Um, rage-filled. You know, the, the scars were all around my house from it. But I think... Um, I think he was, this is my daughter's boyfriend, he was a wobble gob and, and let it slip. Because the four of them, you know, are intermittently close, they, they go out together, the, the four kids do. They're, they're, you know, they're friends, in and out, and he let slip that he was having some counselling. <coughs> the, the girl, so I felt like maybe it was, 
maybe he was trying to say to his girlfriend, look, this is my nice house, my, my nice mother. <laughs> I felt it was a bit of that. You know what, I, I kind of don't care. I think we all been young and stupid once. Have you thought about the fact... Oh, I don't want to make excuses for him. No, I know what you're going to say. But if he's gone through Eton, if he's excelled so well... He had no choice. If... Always. That would be hard, because some people would be sitting there saying, fuck off, he had a choice, it's his mum. You'd never betray your mum. But if he's, if he's going down that path of a life of success, as in for himself, and, and um, whether it be career-driven success, if he didn't do that, if he didn't distance himself from at that time, remember, you've been proven right, but at this time you wasn't proven right about any of it. At this time, when he's probably come out, you could have been wrong about a lot of it. And not just been wrong, but what the media were saying was that you was in danger in life. She was doing this. So oh, yeah, he was calling for me to be jailed. Do you remember? Was he? he yeah, Is one that of what the he things said? he wanted me to put in jail. So he may have been that scared. Well, I, I for, don't know. For his own future. I don't know if he was that scared, but one of my friends who's an actress... What a sad situation. On a, ...on a very horrible sitcom... It's always on a programme that's long-running. You can think about it. It centres around a pub. And it's not Coronation Street that she's on. But she said it was scripted. Yeah, it's so obvious. Mm. And then my other friend... Who do you think that is that's... Do you think... Well, we always know who that is. Yeah. We will know that... As government, in security services? Government. Government. Yeah, all of it is... And, and, and security services would recruit from Eton? Well, it, yeah. They're, they're, that's it, their base. And when, oh, when, when, my, when my ex-husband first came to the UK, he went to a language school. And as I got older, he said that they were approached at that language school, all of them, were approached by MI5 to go and work for them to do translation. Well, look exactly what happened with the, the London bombings, those boys. I mean, what a horror... Everybody should really... Um, I interviewed Nick Collistrum, and everybody should go and read his book, Terror on the Tube. Is this about Seven Seven Women? Yeah. Is this the one that looks at the angle that it was impossible for him to have done it? Absolutely impossible. And if you look, those... Yeah, and who they were... Uh, just terrible, and it's... Do you see all of this, like? Because I would never have bought any of that. Well, when All these false flags... Oh, all of them. When... I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have entertained all of it. It's only now that, see, that terrorism's gone. It's not, where's it gone? It's like... No, because it's climate change. We're yeah, all going to yeah, burn so, to death. So they used... So terrorism was used with 9-11. If you're... I, I'll go down the rabbit hole with 7, seven. I haven't. I haven't ever done that. It um, absolutely was. It, you'd got Netanyahu, you'd got all these main figures from all these countries were all in London at the same time. They've done a trial One of those tubes. trains was actually cancelled. It doesn't exist, the photo. It's a terrible Photoshop photo. You've got, you've got um, right? paramedics who arrived on the scene. I did an advanced trauma and life support course with Kingsmill Hospital, and but you're not saying that people weren't blown up. You're looking at you're looking at the the metal fatigue in those carriages, and the injuries that the people had, and even paramedics commented on it. The injuries that they had, uh, uh, their feet blown. It was. Everything was wrong about it. The way everyone was cleared up. Why would those three boys then make their way down to Canary Wharf? They bought sand tickets. Yeah. And why did tickets. they go to Canary Wharf? And why was everybody ordered to stay back from the windows while the three, See, of, them, while the three of them were shot in the head? Well, I read Nick Collistrum's book, Terror on the Tube, and I read it again recently because I interviewed him on TNT. Read the book. Give me a podcast with him. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, read the book and make your own mind up. I will, because I have never gone down that rabbit hole, because I guess, I guess for my own... It's the rabbit hole marked MI5. Which, which, I, <laughs> which I totally, now, with everything that's gone on, 
wouldn't put anything past them. So by doing that terror attack, it, 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 they, they could bring in laws to take our freedoms, they could turn us all against each other, they could create us to create groups like the EDL, they could drive us to do things like this because of the fear of terrorism and the fear of this. I don't put anything past it now. I don't know what to believe or what to trust. Well, most of it... Everything's been a lot. Yeah, I just think, do, do, can I have any effect on it? No. Does it make any difference whether I believe it or I don't believe it at this stage? No. What can I do? I can try and live out of utopia. I can start growing food, learning more and more, which I do, on how to make natural remedies and just live out, hopefully, because... And prep. Prep. Everybody should be buying You're food. Prepper. Yeah, I am. I've even got a rocket stove. I shouldn't tell anybody they'll be around to rob it. Um, I've got a rocket stove. I mean, if the shit went down... You're right. Yeah, yeah. come here. Yeah. I'm yours. Berkey water filter, I've got it all going on. <laughs> yeah, because this, this is the problem. We're not supposed to live like this. So that's your son turning on you, hits the news, all over the headlines. They use him on all the TV programmes. And he just turns up like, Nate, he yeah. just turns up like nothing's gone on. Yeah. Well, mum, new missus. Still. Yeah. And the neighbours, you know, uh, you know, one because of, people use that to beat you. They do all the time. Oh, they do it all Your the own time. Son, I can they do it on Facebook and yeah. it, it pops up, Facebook, and it'll. Um, people will do it on Twitter. They'll say our own son, and actually, I, I don't very really respond. I don't really care. Yeah, it's so, because what it's, you know what it is? It's the Hello magazine. It's the National Enquirer. It's people loving to, loving that feeling of, of watching someone else's downfall because it reminds them that their shitty little life is worth something. It, it, that's what it is. And, and that's the saddest thing. There but for the grace of God go I. Because everybody has something in their life that will make them uncomfortable or that they regret or that they've not done right, everybody. And how would they feel to have it constantly rubbed at them? Wilma didn't. Hmm? Wilma might not have. She didn't. <laughs> she, she didn't, actually. She was... My mum hasn't either, I don't think. Yeah, and, you know, when you find people like that, you should hang on because yeah. all you can do when you find someone that good is emulate them. Mm. Emulate them. Um, you, so COVID-19 hits off... You come out, you're talking, you're predicting lots of things. I get up, struck off. You get struck off as a nurse? <laughs> I do. How'd that feel? I what? didn't care. I served them all notice of genocide at the NMC. I served them all <laughs> while they were sitting. I put, gave them a notice, sent it even to the woman that was taking the minutes, the look of horror on her face. <laughs> and I, yeah, I ran circles around. Then I went, oh, I'm not engaging with you anymore. And I just left them to it to have all these things. And they even had... The chief, ex-chief constable who had to apologise to the people in Yorkshire for letting Jimmy Savile go. She was one of the ones on the panel at one stage. They kept changing the panel because we kept, we kept doing our own investigations on them and they would lie and then we'd find it out and go, is that you? And then they'd have to accuse themselves. So... Was, how, how, was all, how did all this feel? When, when it's hitting off, because you went on a... Well, well, I knew. Was it a crusade? I, I knew. You I were knew head was, on. I knew it was all coming. You were on, you were on the internet everywhere. You were running into vaccine centres. You were organising protests. You were speaking at rallies. They, it, it, but you, once you, you, you have to make it... You're either in or you're out. You can't have one toe in. And me and my cousin agreed that when we started Yeah, so, so once, you, once you get in the arena, you're there for the fight. And it doesn't matter even if you try to get out of the arena. You're in the arena and they're going to chew you. So you either... There's no running. Yeah, you either keep going or, or you disappear. So I but just... But many have disappeared. 
So many have disappeared. Well, I think you get a lot of people, sadly, um, they're in it for their ego, aren't they? They're, I see them out there doing all these things. Yay, freedom! And, and it's for their ego, because if they really were really knew what was going on, absolutely going on, they'd be thinking, how am I going to get myself and my children through this? How am I going to, because this is going to get a lot worse, how am I going to get through this storm? What can I do? What can, what can I do for myself? What can I do for those around me? How can I serve? And people aren't, they don't serve. Do you think, so when I set up the English Defence League, I remember a lady saying to me, your biggest problem's gonna come from within. Mm. And I remember thinking, shut up, like, every we're, all, we're all lads. Every regime is, is broken from within, never yeah. from the outside. So I thought, we're all lads, what do you mean? And then within weeks, months, it was just non-stop. Because it, it becomes jealousy and ego. Would you say it's jealousy or ego, or do you think in your experience of what you've experienced within the freedom movement in the UK, was it jealousy, was it ego, or do you think security services are playing a part in making sure I, that it's I think, divided? I think that you do get security it's services. Divide, Absolutely. Of course you do. If you've got any, any movements, any times of political unrest, the security services will set up their own groups and then it will smoke out the dissidents to come and join those groups. That's always a standard procedure. And, and so they disrupt them. Yeah. And, and they throw accusations at people. Yeah, and, and to... to to, yeah, to cause that discourse from within, you get that. But then you also got, um, and I heard it, I actually had it said to me, why does she get the interview? Why are you getting that interview with them? Why am I not getting it? And, and one particular person who said it to me was very educated and, and I thought, well, probably because you're really boring when you talk. But I mean, I didn't say that because it's, people aren't just buying, they don't want to just buy into what you're saying. They you want got the whole persona. Right as well, yeah. Yeah. And you look good and you They, you they want speak the whole, well. they want the whole, and they want a, a leader. Well, might, that's why they'd have feared you as well. Yeah, a leader might be not even telling the truth, but it's, it's is it believable? It's Are they, so it's not what they say, it's how they say it. And, and that's why, I, I mean, I'm always being asked now and I keep, one of my friends says, I really think you should go as an independent, you should start thinking about going into politics. An independent politician? Yeah. Which, <laughs> you see, my own, I, well, my only upset about that is that some people might vote me in and then I'd have to go down to that big, horrible place in London. But it would be great to watch. I'd have to take my chihuahuas with me It would be well. great to watch. But uh, no, I wouldn't back down on any of it, none of it. And, um, I, you know, I, I just flew in here today with the best of British, best of British, all with their brand new trainers on, all going on their jollies that they've probably saved up all year for, all on this plane, and, you know, dreaming about... The, oh, there was a whole group of young lads saying they were going to go and get a full English name. And I, and I thought, I wonder if they know anything of what I know. wonder if they know or wonder if they care. Well, well I was going to say that next. Do they know anything of what I know? And in Scripture, it tells us that... that knowledge will torment us. So when you know the truth, it, it never, you can never rest. My mum my calls me a tortured soul, a tormented soul. But that is it. it will, so for you, with what you do, you will never let it rest. I interviewed John Wedger. I don't give a rat's ass what anyone says about John Wedger. I've done lots of, of interviews with him. And he was asked to look for... What's wrong with John Wedger? Uh, well, people always say, oh, well, they say the same. People say it about everyone. I know. So he... You know, he had a very difficult life. He, he took on someone else's children. He then was 
bringing up four children on his own as a full-time police officer. And he could have kept his mouth shut and he was asked to go and investigate two child trafficking rings and he found 80. And he was told, shut up, don't talk about it. He was taken into an office. I think Cressida Dick was there, a lot of senior police. And he continued and he continued and continued. He works with... And they threatened to take his kids. Oh, they took his, they didn't they pay his him. Yeah, they, they did everything to him. And he works now with, with um, disabled children. He's a good man. And that's still happening. That's still going on. And, you know, th this is a, a piece of society that is so dirty. And, and do, do a lot of people care? I mean, all these people rushed out to see The Sound of Freedom. I, I never went to see it. I don't need to go there to, uh, you know, to have some feelings evoked in me. Oh, isn't it terrible? Isn't it terrible? Till next week when I've forgotten about it because I'm off shopping down to Ikea. Um, but, you know, they can step into some of the poorest areas in big cities and see children that if they just sponsored that kid, you know, gave that kid 20 quid a month, buy that child a pair of shoes that it needs for school or buy it at school uniform. You know, kids, some kids don't even get anything to eat till they get to school. Yeah, my mum worked at a school. She they get a behaviour unit. And they don't even get breakfast. They're the only person that gets up in the morning. Yeah. Nobody else gets up in the school. Sometimes the head teacher rings to get the child up. Never think about that when you're at school, though, did you? Because I remember being at school and I look now... I don't know where you the, went to school. I look at some of the kids <laughs> I was at school with thinking, I wonder what he actually had going on in his life. You know, some of the kids who were a bit outcast. I know, but the ones uh, that were dirty, yeah, the, the dirty ones kids, that yeah. didn't have, you, you didn't think about, didn't it. have the right clothes that got bullied. Yeah. yeah, and they got bullied. So everyone's rushing out to see Sound of Freedom. What about your own country? Mm. What about what's going on right now in the UK? It's happening in London, and they just changed the Police and Borders Bill. It's even easier to traffic children now in the UK. Mm. Even easier, and and I told you something in the car that goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's going on everywhere, isn't it? It's going on everywhere. So how do we stop that? We've, you've already answered it earlier. The women should be back in the home. They should be raising the children. The men should be the head of the family. The families should be around. The grandparents, I'm, I'm, I'm the aunties, the uncles. That should be so tight. Any child goes a little bit... they've convinced women that... It, they're convinced if you have that conversation that all these labels are phony. But now. you're a misogynist. Yeah, but because... And they've convinced women that their true freedom is in working 40 hours a week and not seeing their children. And coming home and doing the cleaning. They've convinced them that that's their freedom. It's like, well, and, you know... They've been convinced that that is freedom. So that is the answer to it all. The answer to protecting the children is to, is to bring back the nuclear family. It's not 100%. Which everything at the minute is focused on attacking the nuclear family. Yeah. The whole list of stuff. Well, you, you, what about the police? Because you were... Uh, have you ever been arrested in your life prior to? Yes. Prior? Yes. Okay, go on. Um, when? Well, I had a domestic with my husband. Oh, okay. And I got arrested. Okay. And in, in defence. Other than that? So he phoned them and I got arrested and then the police were very good to me okay. because it was a defence. No, other than that, I would say I was a goody two-shoes. I, I never did anything wrong, what I thought was wrong. And then, um, and then COVID happens, you start talking I know, talking I out. couldn't, I don't care. But you started talking out against COVID, you started making videos, you started being a bit of a figurehead. And then you, was you arrested? I was. For what? I was uh, chased down Whitehall chased. in my green cape. Is there a video of that? There is, 3.2 million, million views on YouTube. <laughs> what have you been chased by yeah. the police? In a cape. In a cape. 
And my daughter was disgusted. <laughs> uh, and, the de- and the chief constable of Sussex Police's daughter was in my house what that day. Uh, and later on, when I got home late, I said, yeah, I was getting chased down white by hundreds of cops. <laughs> what are your kids thinking? And my daughter was like, because her friend's father was the chief constable. Um, so I was in Speaker's Pen with Dr. Kevin Corbett, and I was on the megaphone for hours giving it welly. Come on out, Boris, your time's up. And, um, and there was cops in the van, they were laughing. And, and I did like several hours, you know, the police were going by and I was like, well, looking a bit overweight there, constable. You know, we're just people on a coach, you know, an open top bus with masks on. I was shouting, get your masks off, you're on the bus. We were just doing all this. We did the radio live to America. And uh, there was a whole load of stuff going on. Extinction Rebellion were at one end, Stinky Rebellion. <laughs> Black Lives Matter were up the other end. For fuck's sake. And then there was another rally coming from the BBC, which was Stand Up X with a police escort. So all the helicopters started coming. And, and then I, this Stand Up X came and they had a chat with us in speaker's pen. There were six of us in there. You were allowed to gather in groups of six. And then I got on the microphone and I had a chat to them all. And then I did the Lord's Prayer with them all. And then they all dissipated. And as they dissipated, I saw this line coming down Whitehall of, of high-vis vests and masks. And I'm talking a line blocking the road. And I thought, well, that's getting a bit interesting. And then there was one coming up the other end. <laughs> come for you. And then the tactical firearms unit arrived, the guys with the guns. And they pull up and they all get out, but they look over at me. And the helicopter's above. And I thought, this is not looking very good. And um, then this guy comes running in. He says, they're coming for you. They're coming for you. I thought, you're telling me. Anyway, so then this great big group of people surrounded me as for some to stop the police bizarre reason with my handbag, cape, skin-tight dress on and high heels, thinks I'm going to outrun all these cops. So I started to run with- <laughs> down with a whole group around me it's classic you know the video i'm talking about it's really funny and i'm running like mini mouse with this bed this high heels and the next thing the police kettle me and then they start picking off the crowd around me so we turned around and started running back in the other direction and then one of the cops falls over the video is spectacular and all he falls over and all the people, anyway, then they, they pushed me against a wall. They actually did hurt me. Pushed me against a wall. And then they all came round in an arch. Then all the public were going mental. And I don't know to this day what it was. Then they put a black guy on the floor in front of me and knelt on his neck. What is that all about? And he went to court as well. He contacted me and I thought, I'm not getting involved in that because I don't know what that was about. And then they kept saying to me, you can call this off at any minute. And I said, it's nothing so to do with me. Were they, saying that you, were they saying that you were in the organiser of a rally that wasn't allowed to take place during COVID? They, they, they found, at court, mm-hmm. they found me guilty of that stand up X that came by and they said that I didn't get out of the way quick enough. So they, so they, they arrested you that day? Not for that, though. No, but, OK. So on this day, when you've, you've run up that way, you've run up that way. I got arrested. Was there any I, moment when you get under arrest and you're standing there thinking, no, what, it's what the re- fuck am I doing? No, it's really funny. Because, <laughs> because, because you can hear the video. <laughs> the comments are spectacular. Because people from South America have put only in Britain. Because 
because it, one, one comment said in my country, they just shoot you in the head. Because I'm standing there and this cop, you see the cop on the video, he's got my wrist and I'm slapping him going, get your hands off me, social distancing, social distancing. And I've taken my high heels off to run. So I'm putting my shoes on and someone's wrote underneath because the camera guy was from up above, I know him who filmed it. And someone said, her roots need doing. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but I was de-arrested. I was, yeah, I was de-arrested. <laughs> That day. There and then or at the police station? There and then. Okay, so grabbed Because I was never arrested. Okay. Just de-arrested. Okay, so they held you up, up in there. Held you up for the usual... So then, then we had the, the day in Trafalgar Square where 400 of whatever riot cops came in and... And I, I was got out by some really clever guys into, you know, through a hotel, into a, into a uh, taxi and then into a cafe with Dolores. They'd got her out earlier. I love Dolores. Yeah, so we... Did this all excite you, if we're being honest? No, I... I... Did this, this, did, did, when this was happening, did you thrive off it? Not really. I remember the day I was told to dress in disguise to get into Trafalgar Square and I, ke I turned up and I had a dress on. I had this... Really disguised? Then? Turquoise satin mac and a beret, turquoise. And the guy went, I fucking told you in disguise. <laughs> Inconspicuous. And I was like, this is inconspicuous. But anyway, we I got out that day and they didn't get me. And we later found out at court that all those cops, that was their order was to get me. And they didn't. So several days later, we were outside Parliament and they were debating the Coronavirus Act. And... This you were everywhere at this moment. Yeah, on the megaphone. I was on the megaphone that day. And Every day. And this cop... Well, well, I'll never see anyone in there all the time. Yeah, and then all of a sudden this police van pulled up, uh, you know, with the, that they sit in, and then they just came over and arrested me. And um, Handcuffed you? No. They, she, she was standing with the handcuffs. I went, really? I said, I can't run in these shoes and this dress. And you're gonna, I'm not going to run anywhere, am I? So I said, and they're dirty, and your gloves are dirty, so don't touch me. What did they arrest you for? Um... Conspiracy, uh, public nuisance with conspiracy to incite violence, which is five years to life in prison, I think. It's an old common law at the time. So they put me in their police van and it was full of sweet papers, crisp packets. So clearly, you know, they eat healthy and they were worried about social distancing because they'd all been in these vans marauding around town. I've got to clean my car. Got job. Yeah, so, so they, um, <laughs> yeah, so they kept me in custody for 32 hours. They bought... They extended it? Yeah, they brought the superintendent down. And the solicitor, Richard Parry, said they were trying to get me... I know that name. ...in front of the magistrates to get me detained, put me on remand. And it didn't work. And so they had to release me, and they gave me two ten thousand... I got a £10,000 fine. Um, they released with bail? Or they bail? Yeah, bail. So did you have to go for a judge? Released with bail. Yep. Uh, to appear in two weeks with a £10,000 fine, and then I got another £10,000 fine through the post. I just wrote on both of them, I don't recognise these as lawful, and sent them back. And I never heard anything else. They disappeared into the ether. Most people who challenged them didn't, didn't yeah. have to pay them. Was I didn't a, even challenge them, was I just it a sent scare them back. That was a scare tactic. I don't know, but I wasn't paying anything. And then... Um, when you're under arrest like this, when this is going on, it's on the news, does your mum ring you from Australia? No, Dee did. Dee rings you? Dee rang me in the cell. Uh, <laughs> she got through to the cell. Because uh, they had a phone, oh, they ringed the reception. They yeah, so I was in there for 32 hours. <laughs> what, did you, what, what, what did you say? I think, what were you doing? You know, she told, she'd sorted everything out. Oh, okay, so she joined out lawyers. And... She's a woman. No, she she was speaking to all the right people. They, okay. She knew what she was doing. Does your mum ring you? 
Does she really? Does your mum from Australia? Ge- no, does she, she no. Does she know any of this is going on? No, my my great uh, my my uncle will send her newspaper articles of what I was up to. <laughs> Go on, girl. Yeah, it's, no, no, not not because they were on my side. Oh, okay, there. Um, okay. But no, I so I was in custody for thirty-two hours. They extended it. I I didn't. I slept for about thirty. I just prayed and slept. Completely all right. I was completely at peace. On the little blue mat. Um, no. Was it a blue mat? I had, they left me with my shoes on and my cape. Okay. They didn't take anything off me. And I just prayed on my knees and then I slept, pulled the blanket, slept, had a really good sleep, so I had no wrinkles. I fasted, just had bottles of water, they bought me bottles. And I came out there five pounds lighter and with no wrinkles, <laughs> it was like a free spa. But anyway, when I was leaving, um, they, they told me that they'd watched all my teaching videos on my laptop. And the inspector said, all oh, my friends got pancreatic cancer. Will that help him? I said, yeah, get him to email me. And then the, the cops... Were the police good with you? Were they nice with you? They were lovely. Okay. And then the two cops that were, had arrested me, the next day I remember the guy, he said to me, I went and looked up what you said. It's right. I said, I know, I told you. Because I gave them all the acts to look at. And then the policewoman, when they were interviewing me as well, she was... She was sitting there. And then after it all, when I was going home and I was being released, she went, did you notice I stopped wearing my eye watch? I went, yeah, but you had your laptop on your lap. Still streaming through your gonads. So because I'd said to her about an eye watch, and she's taking. taking it off. And I they thought, were all probably admiring you as well. So or, they and, and didn't then... take me out the front because there were people out the front. You know, let them out, let them out. <laughs> they took me out through the cage at the back. Yeah. That was interesting. This is... When everyone's supposed to wear masks, all the cops were in the back with their masks onto their chin, having a fag. It's all bullshit. And then the inspector said, I'm, I'm not having the vaccine. He said, I'm, I'm going to retire. So they do know, but yeah, it doesn't matter. They're scared. It doesn't matter. Look at who killed all the people on the streets in Nazi Germany, the brown shirts, the police. It was the police, some of the military and the local people who slaughtered their own people among them. The Lithuanians, the Romanians, you have to remember that. It's, it's as fine a line as this between people being your neighbour and being your killer. Yeah, and how quickly it can turn. You also, so you're a nutritionist. I mean. I've got a diploma in personal nutrition, personal nutrition advisor. As in living healthy, mm. eating healthy. So you, you, do you believe all the answers are, are in what we, we're putting in our bodies? Absolutely. What you put on your bodies, what you put in your bodies. Would you say what you put on? Sun cream? I would never wear sun cream. Deodorant? I don't wear deodorant. So you're, you're yeah, yeah. <clears throat> because of what's in them. Yeah. And, and you need to sweat. That's how your body detoxes. And actually, if your diet's cleaner, you don't really smell. And um, your skin, biggest organ of your body. And the sun, you should be out in the midday sun when your shadow is short converts your cholesterol in your skin to vitamin D, supercharged in the liver, all your food comes down the hatch. Your cal- my, calcium binds you vitamin D. I think D. more people more than ever right now are searching these avenues. As in alternative, really careful, alternative medicines, alternative life. It can be, alternative medicine can be as corrupt as allopathic. Okay. And supplements, 90% of them are, are synthetic. Yeah. The best way to get your food is it's to grow it yourself, nutrient-dense food. Pray over it. Speak. Dr. Emoto, 
showed in his experiment with water that when he froze uh, the two I dishes, saw. wonderful to, book. To explain that, it's insane. So you, he got two Petri dishes and he froze them of water and one they played uh, slaughterhouses and torture and the other one poetry and, and psalms and prayers and the molecules freeze beautifully in all these all hexagonal shapes, the other one was all distorted. It showed that the, the, the negativity affected. If you if you put fluoride, the same. It's quite worrying. Any of the chemicals. All, all, I, all I concentrate on is negative stuff. And so, so our bodies are uh, majority of our body is water. It should be over eighty percent water. H two O, hydrogen. So if you think this is where we're judged, we will be judged by every word we speak because we stand in the holy temple of what water. So if you're speaking all of this stuff over yourself, if you're feeling anger, resentment, jealousy, fear, that's resonate at 0.2 to 2 hertz, 2.2 hertz, it's a PhD study. Joy, love, laughter, acceptance, 180 to 220 hertz. So if you're at that being angry, resentful, jealous, fearful, speaking it all the time, what, what do you tend to look like? You look ugly. You have illnesses, you have sores, you have cankers, you, you get sick. Do you physically train? Yeah, I do. I, I walk every day and I do free weights. I've got weights in the garage, not pussy whip stuff. I've got proper hardcore weights. <laughs> You're on it. How important do you think that is? Very important as you get older, because I'm 58. So 58? Yeah. So you have to, you've got to... Um, you like look great I did. For Pardon? You look great for Thank 58. you. Um, but yeah, like I, I, you know, I'm a bit fat for me at the moment. People go, no, you're really skinny, but... I am for me, I know where I carry it. But uh, also, you know, that weight bearing, it's a good way to keep, all this rubbish about your skeleton goes all dense and rickety as you get older, it's rubbish. These anti-inflammatories, as soon as you give someone anti-inflammatories, you block a thing called the COX-1, COX-2 pathway, they don't m make prostaglandins that break your bone down, make the cement to stimulate your new bone. Your entire body remodels all the time. Everything is replaced, everything, even your skeleton. So it's very important as you get older to, to keep yourself out of the hospitals, the National Homicide Service, and how do you do that? It's eat, sleep, drink, train. What message, yeah, I agree totally, changes your life. What, what message do you have, say there's a nurse who's watching this, who works hard? Is she a fat nurse? I don't know, let's talk to one. If there's a nurse that works hard, that joined, that joined to help people, that's part of the hospital, working in the hospital, what message do you have to her, who has joined to, to... She's joined to be a nurse for all the work, probably the same reasons you wanted to be a nurse. Or you, you used um, to I, um, it's very simple. I always ask them all the same question. Tell me how you heal the body. And they don't know. They say... We're just, I'm just there to prescribe medicine. drugs. You give them medicine. They go, no, that's not how you do it. Okay. So they don't even know that when that patient has got leg ulcers that won't heal and their food comes up from the canteen, the hospital kitchen, and it's a, a croissant or a crunchy nut cornflakes, a juice in a plastic container that's from concentrate and a cup of tea with white acid poison sugar and A1 milk, there's not even enough protein there for tissue synthesis. They're not going to heal on that. The sugar's going to switch their immunity off straight away for four hours. The hybridised <coughs> wheat's going to make holes in their gut. Do you see? Yeah. You can't... If you go back to, like, when I did my what training... What advice do you give that girl then? Leave. Leave. Leave and join what we're trying to create. These nurses all need retraining. 
They need to be able what to, are you to about? They need to, all the nurses need to be retrained. They need to join the British Nursing Alliance, which is what we've got a telegram channel, we've opened a business, but we need the website doing and it is getting done. What's it called? British Nursing Alliance. It's to bring nurses in so that they live among their communities. They know everyone in their communities. They grew up with the children. Their their children play with their children. Their husbands work with it's their It's all personal. And they know, so when those families get sick, the reason cancer runs in families is not because it's genetic, it's because they all live the same. They're exposed to the same, the same toxins, stuff, the, the same, same toxicity, and then they get sick. So it's about taking those children before they even have children of their own. The most important year of a child's life is the year before it's conceived. Because the egg that made you was inside your grandmother. So when your mother was conceived, shortly after conception, she had all her eggs. So they were exposed to what your grand did, and then what she did in her life, and then she had you. So the most important year is the year before the child's conceived. And that is when you get that girl, woman, into the healthiest she could be. You know this sleeping around with multiple partners? This all, we can have it all. Um, you, know, you know, what is it they called it? I can't remember what they called it. Anyway. Lad being, you know, acting like the lads. Um, what are you going to say? That's bad as all. Well, when a woman has intercourse with a man, the first thing it does is it sets up inflammation in the cervix because her body doesn't recognise that semen. It's foreign. When she has intercourse with him the second time, the body recognises it. Oh, husband's here. If she keeps having intercourse with all different men, she's going to keep having inflammation. What's the precursor to cancer? Okay, that's bad for the women. What about inflammation. the men? Well, if a man is, is watching porn, right oh. men watching porn, they don't know what it is to have a normal, loving relationship yeah, yeah, yeah. with a woman. They can't, they need more and more and more debauchery to get that same level, till in the end they can't even get it up. 50% um, of men over 50 have erectile dysfunction, 60 over 60, 70 over 70, but you can go to the Far East, the Middle East, 80-year-olds are siring children, and it's because men are eating sugar they're eating too much fat, they're drinking alcohol, and they can't maintain an erection. And if you get men away from porn, onto good food, sleeping properly, eating a natural diet, they'll be pole vaulting out of the bed in the morning. Any age. <laughs> your dad's, can your dad hear? <laughs> but that's actually true. So all of this infertility, you know, couples, young couples, one, it used to be one in six, now it's greater, are infertile together. Why? You know, this is, the, the, the woman is, her, her, inside her body will only be, you know, welcoming to a man when she's, when she's ovulating, the cervix comes down, the rest of the time it's hostile. So all of these things, this is why a man should be with a woman. And from a young age, it shouldn't be, you know, people used to get married because the bloke down the road, his son had got loads of sheep, they'd got loads of sheep, so they grew their wealth. And there wasn't these different men all over the place because you didn't travel that far so your arena was less now people you know what is there especially nine billion of us on the planet nobody should technically be single then really should they yeah but it's increasing um what's next for you well there's some bloke out there for me yeah me and d yeah well, <laughs> well, what's in, next for in, me in benadon uh, <laughs> you never know uh, yeah, what's, actually, you asked me what was hard. Dating is hard because, you know, why are they with you? That's the first thing. And also, is there that vying, you know, they've got to find where that place is with you, knowing what I do and 
and of course I'm very different in a relationship so it's it's that are they in love with the persona or, or the real you so that do so you struggle do you well I just don't date anymore I just don't bother I just go out with the dogs but what's next for me um, is the, the website finally finally I'm having in my website we've been doing it and writing it and it's my website is to teach others what I've learned for nutrition it's how to avoid and reverse disease naturally I lecture I do lectures here, there, and everywhere. And it's so that people can learn that they don't need to go to the hospital. They don't need to get sick. So many are saying this now as well. Like I see Joe Rogan. If I break my arm, yeah, I'll go to the hospital. But I ain't asking a doctor anything ever again. Ever again. I see so many people. I've got doctors that are my patients. Oh, Man, the irony. And a dentist. The irony. Because they don't know. Um, Dave, Dr. Dave Cartland said the, one of the loveliest things he said publicly was if he ever got sick, he was coming to me. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, I have patients all over the world and they are patients. That's what they are because they choose to come to me to help them with their health. And, and I've been doing that for years and I can't physically keep up with it. Is there anything you'd change? Anything? I'd probably... What would I change? I'd... Uh, I wouldn't have ran out of Trafalgar Square. Why? Because you don't like the video I'd have running. stayed on that mic. Oh, OK. And let them come and get you. I'd okay. have stayed. I would have... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would have... Um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd do it all again and knobs on. It's going to happen again. So will you be leading? Will you be there? I certainly won't be dying on my knees, going to some super prison that's been built. How many have we got? Four super prisons with incinerators next to them. There's a big clue. Yeah. Or the fact that they're building, what is it? They've just spent billions on building detention centres. But they've given 4.6 billion to Ukraine, but couldn't give 1.6 billion for the 10% deficit in the NHS. That's because it's not about getting you healthy. Of course. Um, so I think all of that coming, um, I, I, I am, I, I'd be a liar if I didn't say, this is what I'm concerned about. I see my two daughters, they're beautiful, they're not very tall, they're lean, and I'm concerned when I see this level of immigration coming in, fighting age men, no women and children, just coming in, just coming in. Unchecked. Yep, unchecked. And I... And then I, I um, you know, I, look, I looked at images um, in the Imperial War Museum, and, I, and I've seen them, I've gone on some of the websites in research I've done. And, you know, in, in the Second World War, young women, 16, 15, 17-year-olds, were stripped naked in the street by their neighbours and beaten, beaten by people that live next door to them. And... I, I posted a photograph recently on Twitter and the woman's bra was hanging off and she was running in her stockings and it was kids that were chasing her with wooden batons to beat her. And she lived among them. So she was a young woman and all her face was covered in blood. And this was from one of the Jews. She, she was probably, you know, was killed at the end of that day. But um, this is in the 1930s and 40s, not so long ago. And I worry about... I think then about my daughters and what will I do? What will I do to protect them? How can I? 
That's what I think you mean, about. You mean if society goes bang, if, if neighbours turn on neighbours, community always turns on community? Look through history. Give me a century where it hasn't happened. Every single century. Every single one. My, my parents' generation and probably your parents' generation were the last generation who were born on the back of war and they're probably going to end their lives before. But, but you can... It's just teemed with debauchery, with, with genocide, with... It, it all just goes round. I've had a fascinating conversation with you. I hey, hope we're going to have a fascinating dinner now, cos we're starving. I'm starving, man. Let me... Can <laughs> I just ask you, um... Say your daughter, we'll personalise it. Your daughter has a partner, he spits at her once. What would your advice to your daughter be? I once said to the daughter's boyfriend that if he drove too fast and he killed her in the car, he would never need to worry about feeling guilty because I would personally kill him. So, um, my, my daughters know what I think. One of my daughters is really sassy and uh, she's very like me. She's giving me a run for my money. She shaved her head once. Um, very beautiful. And she has a couple of boys, that, well, men, that are interested in her, but they're of different cultures to us. And I have spoken about that to her. Which cultures? Uh, one is um, Lebanese and one is from Iran. And okay. they're very beautiful men, of course they are. And one is wonderful, you know, they seem, one of them seems wonderful, perfect. I love what he's doing for a job, love it. But um, I have said, you, you know... Values may differ. Um, yeah, I've said... Culture's different. Because we were talking about, you know, she was asking me for advice, not that I'm the best one for love advice. You know, I sent this text and he didn't remember, what do you think? I was like, shut up, Mum, he was with Dad. Well, I said to her, you know, I said, you, you can't be like that with men. You know, you, if a man's reached out to you, you can't shut them down. I said, it's about provide, parade, protect. I said, you know, so I'm giving her a bit of advice. And I said, you know, you've got to remember as well, it's his culture. So, you know, this all, I have tried to do it like that. But we're all stupid when we're young. We all just, I'm in love! And so what can we do? We, what do we do as parents? We have to support them in their choices and catch them when they fall. Yeah, and I, struggle that's why. I struggle with that with the daughters, man. Yeah, but that's because you're a man. Yeah. But, and, I, and listen, women and daughters as well. And my daughters are both beautiful as well. One of my daughters at the moment, you know, her and I are not seen eye to eye, but... but um, you know, the same as my sons. My door is open for Sebastian. I love him. And I will always love him and adore him. Totally forgiven? Yeah, if, yeah. Some, if someone wanted to... I would stand in front before I'd let anyone harm him. I'd die for him. Absolutely. All of them. Yeah. I might not like them. At times. Um, I love them, but I would die for them. Mm. Because I brought them into this <clears throat> world and I'm not letting anyone take them out before me. That's not the order of events. Well... I dare say people are going to hear from you again. They'll see you again. I'm sure they will, because I ain't doing any of that again. I, I won't be doing lockdown. Are you? No, am I? Fuck. I'd love to. I'd love to talk to you again at some point. We'll see where it all goes. But um, I really enjoyed the case. Thank you. If you're watching this, I'm censored. Everyone's censored. They don't want these conversations being had. Most of all, you see the opposition to people like me or people like Kate. They don't want you. They don't want us being humanised. They don't want people understanding we're normal people, ordinary people, lovely people. So, um, yeah, please like, subscribe, and share this with all your followers. And thank you for watching. And then you, you're the people that help me make these podcasts. And I'm enjoying them. So, thanks. Carry on watching for more interesting guests. I'll talk to anyone. I'll debate anyone. I'll hear anyone's story.
If you want to help me along that way, it's not free. I need your support. If you can support my family, that gives me my peace of mind. It means I can continue to do the work I do. You can do so at www.supporttommy.com. I appreciate every bit of support, as do my children. Gives me the ability to fly them out here to see me so I can stay in constant contact with them. I'm de-platformed and I'm censored, so I need you. I need you to share this content. Make sure you stay tuned for upcoming weekly guests. Interesting guests, exciting guests. I'm Tom Robson, and this has been my podcast, Silence.